We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you. Carry me back to old Virginia. There's where the cotton and the corn and taters grow. There's where the birds warble sweet in the springtime. There's where the old darkest heart am long to go. There's where I labored so hard for old Massa. Day after day in a field of yellow corn. Seventy years after seven black men were executed in Virginia for the rape of a white woman, Governor Ralph Northam has pardoned them posthumously. They're known as the Martinsville Seven. Our Jake Burns spoke to their families today about why bringing national exposure to this case is so important to them. Jake? Well, most of you at home probably have not heard these names before. That's Frank Hairston Jr., Booker Milner, Francis DeSales Grayson, Howard Lee Hairston, James Luther Hairston, Joe Henry Hampton, and John Claiborne Taylor. For their families, this day is about those seven. I couldn't help from crying when I seen my brother's face. I a scheduled rally for justice for the men known as the Martinsville Seven. I cried about it. I prayed about it that, you know, that the families will receive that closure. And today is history. Morphed into a celebration. They will say like James Brown said, get on the good foot. Good God. Okay? We made it. Back in 1951, these seven black men from Martinsville all put to death for the alleged rape of a white woman. The mass execution was the largest for rape in U.S. history, a sentencing first handed down by an all-white jury just eight days after the incident. These men were executed because they were black. In a surprise to the families and advocates, Governor Northam signing posthumous pardons for the Martinsville Seven, saying evidence shows they weren't given due process and their sentence was racially biased. Thank you, Lord. This reaction from James Grayson, the son of Francis DeSalle Grayson, now pardoned 70 years after the state put him to death. As we sit here in 2021 and, and think about you know, what happened, the, the rapid trials, the, the trials by juries that were all white men, um, it, it was wrong. I think we all, again, as a society, need to work together to, uh, to, to do right for the Commonwealth. And I want you all to put this on the front page of a national newspaper. I want to see this on Oprah. I want to see this on MSNBC, CNN. I want the world to know about the Barnesville Seven. A moment of jubilance for seven families who quickly point out the thousands of other black families who won't feel this. If we band together and work together and fight together, we can acquire the end that we seek because the Martinsville 7 is just one story. 
Efforts are underway to memorialize this case and its significance in Martinsville. Advocates hoping through either a museum or some other forum they can find a way to talk about this history and what it means. Who is your favorite um, scientist? Well, I, I, I will balk at, at answering that. I don't really have a favorite scientist uh, per se. Um, but I will say that I almost always try, go out of my way to try to talk about George Washington Carver. And I'll tell you why. I don't know if I mentioned this on your last show or not, Gus. I probably did, but uh, it bears repeating. George Washington Carver was probably one of the greatest scientific minds of modern times. They have given us Newton, and they've given us Einstein, and they give us Stephen Hawking. What did he did three things in his career, each of which would easily merit him a Nobel Prize had he done nothing else. The first thing Carver did. First, let me tell you about his history. So Carver is about four years old, and his family was stolen. They were slaves. They were enslaved and they were stolen by slave robbers. Everybody was killed, except for Carver. And slave catchers actually recovered them. Now, if you've read anything about slave robbers and slave catchers, these are two groups of people that the slave don't want to see because they're completely backwards, more so than the slave monster himself, and very abusive. And so we don't really know fully what happened to Carver when he was in the hands of the slave robber or the slave catcher, but he did survive. And he, they took him back to the plantation, so he lived his life. He wasn't able to do any work after whatever torture they put him through, any field work, so he pretty much worked around the house. This episode is all about the famous Missourian and visionary, George Washington Carver. Today we're going to debunk some of the myths and get to know the man. Dr. George Washington Carver went far beyond peanuts. I'm sure that you have, well, actually, I'm going to ask you, what do you know about George Washington Carver? Peanuts. <laughs> I mean, literally, that's what I know about him. And we were all handed some coloring sheet in school with him standing there holding peanuts. So I, I think my, my memory of him was he was some sort of businessman and obviously was a peanut farmer. We're going to take time to appreciate <laughs> this often overlooked and sometimes misunderstood man. To help us get there, here's a recording of him from 1939, so you can just kind of hear what he sounded like and get an idea of who George Washington Carver was. Dr. Carver, do you consider yourself a chemist? We have to be very careful lest the ego comes in, a person that can bake a reasonably good cake or a reasonably good pan of biscuit can't go out and put up a shingle and say that they are good cooks. But they simply use the kettle or pan as a means to carry out the end. So I simply use the chemical laboratory to find certain things that I'm looking for. I will say this, listening to his voice, I'm struck by the, the tone and the cadence of it. He really has a very unique way of speaking, and it's uh, lilting. It's almost like music. Sometimes it is uh, wise not to look for too much appreciation. The main thing is to be sure you're right and go ahead. 
regardless of whether people appreciate it or whether they don't, because in time, they will appreciate it. George became commonly known for the peanut because he made over 300 different uses for it. He broke the plant completely down and then found ways to rebuild it and reuse it. We're going to start with foods that he made with peanuts. We've got salted peanuts, peanut butter, regular peanut butter, peanut butter flour, butter rum peanut milk, pancake flour, chocolate coated peanuts, peanut butter cookies, which I thought were delicious. Me and my kids made one of the recipes from his bulletin just the other day. For this recipe, we're supposed to eat, we're supposed to cream butter and sugar, add eggs well beaten, then we add milk and flour, flour to taste, vanilla, and the peanuts last. Drop one spoonful to the cooking in well greased pans. All right, so now we've got our cookie dough made. Drop little spoonfuls onto our cookie sheets and let them bake. Then we'll do a taste test. Not too bad. Dry. A little dry. A little dry. But I mean, for a 1930s recipe, not bad. Yeah. yeah. The cookies were great, although very healthy. And not gonna lie, my puppy Oliver loves them as his new favorite dog treats. George Washington Carver made chop suey sauce with peanuts, Horseshire sauce, mock chicken, mock veal cutlets, cream cheese, pimento cheese, a nut sage cheese, all using peanuts. Wait, wait. So all the vegan things that we have today yes. is what you're telling me he created. With peanuts. With peanuts, right. Which is like the cashew cheese that we have today. He just made peanut cheese. Which is so inspiring for the 1920s. And peanut protein or peanut meat. Yes, um, his little mock veal <laughs> with mock veal. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, he's got a lot of things, and then he's he... the godfather of vegetarian and vegan cuisine. Yes, and then he made laundry soap, um, a sweeping compound for your floors, which cleaned at the same time as getting the dirt up. He had medicines, rubbing oil, iron tonic, an emulsion for bronchitis. Uh, he also had some laxatives in there and a little goiter treatment. I felt that we did not know enough about the efficacy of oils in the art of healing. So I started out to find as far as possible the value of uh, some of these oils. And I think one of the most important things uh, to remember is he used peanuts. Um, he recommended it as a crop because peanuts are good for the soil. They pull nitrogen out of the air and they put it into the soil. And he did this about 1920s and it ended up being his lasting legacy and kind of overshadowed everything else that he had done in his life. Okay, so more than peanuts, what, what, is, it, what is it that we need to know about him? Well, I'll take you from the beginning. George Washington Carver was born enslaved around 1864. He lived on a farm owned by Moses and Susan Carver in Diamond, Missouri. Soon after he was born, he and his mother were kidnapped and taken to Arkansas. They eventually found Carver, but they never found his mother. So he returned to the Carver's farm. But when he returned, he was sick with whooping cough. So Moses and Susan Carver took him and his brother under their wing, and as a child, being orphaned and sickly, he spent a lot of time in the forest. He never really had to work the fields because it was just a little too hard on him. 
But there is where he learned and to love the wonders of nature. So he found himself really in those moments of being alone in, in the solace, tranquility, and the just quietness of nature. And that had a huge impact on him and really solidified his relationship with God. He felt God all around him and felt like the... <laughs> this is going to sound a little crazy, but he felt like all of the rocks and trees and leaves and everything that were around him were speaking to him. So he took that as a way to spike his curiosity and it made him want to know more. At nearly 12 years old, George decides he wants to get an education. Alone and on foot, he walks about 10 miles from Diamond, Missouri to Neosho, Missouri. He really wanted to start his own path to freedom. And there in Neosho, he met a free black couple, Andrew and Mariah Watkins. Mariah was a midwife, and she had tons of knowledge of plants and their healing powers. She taught George and stressed the importance of using his talents to empower his people. Eventually, he got accepted to Highland College in Highland, Kansas. But when he arrived and they saw he was African-American, they turned him away. So instead, George eventually made his way to Iowa. He was accepted to Simpson College, where he discovered that he wanted to be an artist and that he was an amazing artist. There, he really thrived, and eventually he got really into horticulture. George became the first black student to get his master's at Iowa State University and the first black faculty member ever at the school. What an incredible story. Seriously, for, for a, a, a small black child in Missouri to find his way kind of time and time again after, and, you know, after things are kind of taken away from him, you know, he finds new people find him and take him in. Yes. I like to think of that as like um, Missouri spirit, you know, to right. just kind of be that neighbor, be that person to be there and help someone and lend a helping hand. I think that that's, Absolutely. that makes me really proud. It's not like George Washington Carver came out of nowhere, right? This is part of the, you know, the whole community's move forward. Rafia Zoffer is a professor at Washington State University. It's like the expression, right? Making a way out of no way. She wrote a wonderful book that I got at the beginning of the summer called Recipes for Respect, African-American Meals and Meanings. And she is really good at explaining um, foodways. Do you know what foodways are, Jenny? I don't. So foodways is kind of where um, culture and history collide. American foodways are African-American, African, they're European, and they're Native American. And people often don't realize. I mean, that is, that is the greatness of the United States. So she focuses on, on that and preserving foodways, which is what she believed that, um, that George Washington Carver did. He, he was trying to preserve foods and ways of making food and getting food for future farmers to give them kind of a roadmap of how to how to be regenerative farmers in their practices you know it's like passing the torch i mean carver so he is so underrated and of course i was one of like all those little school children who knew about you know like oh george washington carver invented peanut butter george washington carver did not invent peanut butter that is one of the myths. He made it, but he did not invent it. Canadian chemist Marcellus Gilmore Edson did. Rafia Zoffer has a beautiful way of highlighting Black history 
and really given a voice to the food movement that sometimes gets forgotten or misunderstood. The scales fell from my eyes. More than peanuts, I thought. Hmm. George Washington Carver, we should start with the myths because he's so much more than the myths that we hear. Yes. Yes, he is. You know, and that's, you know, this is true of so many people. I mean, who immediately comes to mind? Rosa Parks, right? Rosa Parks, she was tired and she sat down because it was the last straw. Forgetting that there had been years of social activism on her part, years of pushing for civil rights. But the soundbite, the thing, the little image and the story that kids get and then passes on to the elders is that, you know, she was just working hard and, you know, she just couldn't take it anymore. No, it was part of a life struggle. And Carver is like that. So many people who are not famous in the way that Carver is or famous in the way that Parks were doing the same kind of thing, the daily struggles that are not, you know, put up in lights, that are not memorialized either in histories or in children's books. He gave up a job at Iowa State and he said, my people are calling me. He had a mission. His career led him to increased respect for overall Black intellect and scientific prowess. So his life constituted its own, if indirect, debunking of white supremacy. So when he was, he was getting into circles and getting into fields of agriculture that you didn't see a lot of Black professors in. He was actually the only um, African-American in the country that had a degree in agriculture at the time Booker T. Washington came looking for him to go teach at Tuskegee. And it's interesting because in some ways he really didn't grow up like in a small black town, right? He was not at a big, he did not, wasn't raised on a, like a game plantation in like Georgia or Louisiana where he'd be like tons of black folks around him. He really had the, the life of a fairly isolated African-American person who was enslaved, right? This like maybe there were only two or three people on the farm. So it's not like it's not like there wasn't blackness all around him, but he didn't have necessarily as a young person, other than his brother, have that sort of web, right? That that matrix. But he knew it was there and he knew how important it was, how fundamental it was. In 1896, Booker T. Washington sent George a letter offering him a job at Tuskegee University in Alabama, which had just been founded. Booker T. Washington needed to create an agriculture department, so he sent him a letter asking him to come and teach at the school, and Carver wrote back to Booker T. Washington and said, It has always been one ideal of my life to be the greatest good to the greatest number of my people possible, and to this end, I have been preparing myself for this moment for years, feeling as I do that this education is the key to unlocking the golden door of freedom to our people. George remained at Tuskegee for the next 47 years until his death. He needed to be there. If Tuskegee was a place where his people could get an education, he struggled to get an education. So that's why Tuskegee was so important to him, and also that model of Black self-sufficiency that Booker T. Washington was preaching. 
He actually came up with a wagon. It was called the Jessup Wagon, and he would take it to small towns and fairs and uh, different festivals. And on the on the actual wagon, he would have different foods to show them different hands-on techniques for farming and ways to preserve the food that they were growing. So he, he took the show on the road, which was pretty unheard of for that time period. He was ahead of everybody. The thing that I loved about the Jessup wagon is that it was going to places where sharecroppers weren't getting a lot of attention. And he was able to go and really just educate them and help give them a leg up using their own land so that they could make it through the right. winters or whatever seasons they needed to without having to rely on anyone else. Right. It's a company store, right? If you're just in the old in places where you can get stuff is, you know, owned by rapacious whites, you know, or even not too rapacious and they, they'll overcharge any sharecropper, you know, white, black, or if they were any Native American, you know, they were just going to overcharge people, right? That's kind of what people did. Yeah. And it was hot. It was so hot. It was it was like a 95, 100 degrees in the shade. The wind never blew. And they say that New Orleans has humidity down there, which kind of cools us off. That's bullshit. It was un, it was death heat. Inside the convention center, it was so stifling hot, people tried to stay outside. Hot as hell, 100-something degrees. It's hot. It was very, very hot at that time. It was 97, 98 degrees. It was hot. And the heat radiating off of the highway yeah. at night was intensely hot. It's hot as hell. That was the worst summer. I mean, that, that was, there was some, I mean, that, that heat was ridiculous. Man, it was hot as heck in here. It was beyond Africa heat. If Africa heat was anything like that, like I said before, and I'll say it again, they keep saying, go back to Africa. Hell no. We started the show talking about hurricane relief for the Gulf Coast. Science has proven that climate change is making hurricanes more intense and more frequent, and that it's having a similar effect on wildfires and excessive heat. Now, this month, the Italian island of Sicily may have registered the hottest temperature ever in Europe. The mercury reached 119 degrees, and temperatures got even hotter closer to home earlier this summer when a heat dome settled over the Pacific Northwest. Meanwhile, a new report shows that climate change could quadruple the likelihood that outdoor workers in the U.S. are exposed to deadly heat, which would jeopardize not only their livelihoods, but their lives. Reset sustainability contributor Karen Weigert joins us now to talk about urban heat and how discriminatory policies like redlining are linked to higher rates of heat-related illnesses for people in marginalized communities. Karen once served as chief sustainability officer for the city of Chicago, and she's currently executive vice president at Slipstream, a clean energy innovation nonprofit. Hi, Karen. Welcome back. Hey, Sasha. Good to be here. Karen, though the temperatures are slightly milder now, I guess we could say, you know, Chicago's been really, really hot. But have other places been even hotter? You know, many, many places have been hot, definitely hot. In fact, July was the hottest month ever recorded by NOAA. So, you know, you gave those examples of Italy and then Portland. We've seen multiple cases of really, really high heat and not just a day, but heat waves. But it all comes to a point, if you think about the example, the highest land temperature ever recorded happened this year in California, Death Valley. Wow. So how do these extremes fit into the bigger picture of global warming? Unfortunately, they do fit. Now, so there is this trend of warming overall, and the stats are just all there, unfortunately. We've had 19 of the 20th warmest years since 2001. 
the hottest decade was 2011 to 2020. The hottest year was last year. So we have this base of warming. And when you have heat waves, you're now starting from a base that's already warmer. So they're all a little bit more extreme. In addition to we're having more and more of those incidents. And when you think about the big picture, often you hear folks talk about we're looking at trying to address climate and stay below that 1.5 degrees of warming goal. That's Celsius. If you put it in Fahrenheit, we've already passed 1.5 degrees. So we often think Fahrenheit instead of Celsius. We're already seeing that kind of warming. I know it's one thing to talk about how hot it is. Obviously, we're feeling it in in places that we live. But how dangerous has this heat been, Karen, both here and, and elsewhere? Yeah, heat's extremely dangerous, and I appreciate you asking the question. Chicago obviously has experienced this in the most devastating and profound waves with the heat wave back in 1995 with multiple days of heat, you know, with over 700 people killed. But this is happening in multiple places. In fact, if you look at the largest weather-related disaster in the U.S., it actually is heat consistently. And so we're seeing those heat waves, and we're not just seeing them in the U.S., but we're seeing that you know, if you just add a heat wave on top of a place that's already one degree warmer than it used to be, back to those trends we were just talking about, it increases the risk of dying by two and a half percent. So there's a multiplier there. It's really scary. How close are we to getting back to 1995? Because that's scary. Yeah, that is. And uh, I think we've seen similar things in other places. I think that heat wave, that dome that existed over the Pacific Northwest and in Canada, that was incredibly unusual. And that's a place where homes don't typically have air conditioning. Canada saw its highest temperature on record yesterday. You'll only find it hotter in Kuwait and Iraq. Even Death Valley is cooler today than some parts of British Columbia. Carolina and her five-month-old baby in northern Vancouver didn't sleep a wink last night. So we're spending like $300 to sleep in a hotel tonight and um, have the baby and the dog in a room with air conditioning. And so when you're in those moments of extreme heat, you need to cool, and there are multiple ways to think about that, but having that air conditioning and being able to afford that air conditioning really matters. You know, gratefully, we haven't seen exactly that kind of heat in Chicago, but the trends are towards more heat. So sometimes it feels hotter in some parts of the city than others. Why is that? Yeah, it feels that way because it actually is hotter okay. in some parts of the city. thought I was losing my mind. <laughs> no, it's, it's not you. Uh, it's actually what's around you. It's the urban heat island. And so in cities, the surfaces that are dark will absorb heat. So they'll absorb the solar radiation during the day. And so you feel that. And at night, then that comes back out. And so some places don't even cool as much at night. And so you have that dark infrastructure. And then in many places in our city, you don't have a lot of trees. And so the trees provide you know, that respite even in that moment when you can get that shade. But they also provide some cooling from the leaf structure. And so it is the case that parts of cities are actually hotter. And they're often places that are additionally near highways or near factories that are creating essentially waste heat that then adds to what the local infrastructure has already caused. Mm. This disproportionate heat pattern, does that happen in many cities? It does. It absolutely does. There are multiple cities actually that are reporting on this. So they will talk about temperature differentials in different neighborhoods in their cities. And so you can certainly see it that way. What's particularly profound is that there's now been analysis that looks at why and where. And in over 100 cities, the analysis showed that there are links historically to redlining. So neighborhoods that did not receive investment, where there were discriminatory lending policies based on race typically, you're still feeling that effect now. 
those areas often have less tree cover. And so in city after city after city, those historical red lighting maps are translating into hotter places for people to live right now. And there are even examples where some of the hottest zip codes will lead to the highest emergency-related visits in those heat days. Wow. That is Karen Weigert. If you're just tuning in, she is Reset's sustainability expert and executive vice president of Slipstream. Karen also served as the city of Chicago's chief sustainability officer. Karen, I want to zoom out just a little bit and take this global. What else is happening around the world? Well, those heat trends are certainly global. The IPCC recently put out a report that showed that changes in the Earth's climate are happening in every region around the world and that warming over land is actually higher than the global average. So this is happening in every corner of the Earth. And then if you look at questions about where, it's often interesting to look at where is population growth? And a lot of the global population growth is happening in places that are warmer to begin with. So places like India or Africa. And so you have population growth. People are going to need places to live. And you have heat that is already high and rising. So we're going to have a huge air conditioning challenge so that growing populations ideally can be cool. But right now that puts you in a cycle of air conditioning typically. And that can be a large source of carbon. Mm -hmm. So there are efforts there. There's a Kigali amendment to the Montreal Protocol, which is working to address the climate impacts of coolants in air conditioning. There's a lot of work to do there because globally, more and more people are going to need to be cooled. So, Karen, you know, let's bring it back to Illinois for just a moment. We sit on one of the largest bodies of fresh water in the world. And being from Toronto, I know how the Great Lakes can tinker with the weather. So how does the lake relate to this heat? Well, first of all, lucky us and thank you to the many people who built these cities so that we get the privilege of living in places like Chicago and throughout the Great Lakes. Because you're absolutely right. The Great Lakes and our proximity to the Great Lakes do result in cooler summers and milder winters. And so we do benefit from that in addition to the many other ways that we benefit from access to a lake and to cooling and actually things like swimming on a hot summer day. But there are little pieces of data that are troubling that are emerging. And there was some recent data this summer on temperatures deep, deep down in Lake Michigan. We're talking 500 feet down. And they looked at many, many years and they are seeing small elements of warming even that deep. So we're certainly benefiting from the Great Lakes now, uh, but we have to keep our eye on what's happening. So what are cities doing uh, exactly to address heat inequity and, and other heat issues? There's a lot that cities can do. We talked a little bit earlier about trees and some of the benefits of trees. And in the right places, a tree can just fundamentally reduce a home's energy cost by up to 25% in significant numbers. And DOE has also looked at the benefit of trees across the U.S. from air pollution removal even to carbon sequestration, sort of capturing carbon. And it's really significant. So one of the places that cities can look is absolutely trees. Um, and we actually heard from Daniela Pereira, the Vice President of Community Conservation from Open Lands, when she joined us on the show on this very topic. The more tree canopy we have, the less urban heat island. And urban heat island really comes about because we tend to have a lot more pavement a lot more buildings and cities, and that absorbs the sun's energy and then releases it at heat. And it releases it at heat at night when things usually should cool off. One study recently says in the United States, extreme heat events cause more deaths annually than all other extreme weather events combined. Interesting. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. And if you tie that then to what's possible, so Chicago is now looking at a new urban forestry ordinance. That's really important. We have to figure out how that's actually going to be implemented and what it can do. But the data on the tree cover in the Chicago metro region actually shows that it increased over the last decade, but not in the city of Chicago. And so we really have some things to look at there. Um, And other cities are starting to create roles. Miami, in fact, has a new role of a chief heat officer. Athens, Greece has done the same thing. Wow. Because they're really looking at that question and having to think holistically about how do they protect their residents from this real challenge of heat. A chief heat officer, a CHO. Interesting. Um, I want to talk more about the chain effects here. How does extreme heat impact the economy? Miami has the first chief heat officer. And one of the things that she's talked about is the impact on outdoor workers. And so many of us, you know, we're able to have this conversation indoors, but many folks work outdoors and that's increasingly dangerous. So there's a real impact directly there when you just think about the course of work during a day. You know, then there are implications for related industries. So how will heat continue to impact agriculture? We're seeing changes in planting times. We're seeing also changes in precipitation. So the impacts actually start to thread through the economy. And when the Chicago region recently looked at a new climate plan, they identified the two largest threats as flooding and heat. So what can we do right now, Karen, to fix this? Because this is this is pretty urgent. Tell us the low-hanging fruit in, in policy, maybe, or even just in our own homes and neighborhoods that we can cling to. Yeah. So the first thing is, what do you do when it's hot right now? So when it's hot right now, there are what are called passive cooling opportunities. So it's ways where you don't have to buy anything new, but to keep your place cooler. So it's things like blocking your windows so that the sun and the heat doesn't come through. The windows are actually a way that heat moves really easily inside. Uh, There are ways then, you know, at night to think about opening your windows to get the cooler night air into your home and then to open windows if you have, if you have a two floor at the top so that hot air goes out. So that's something that can work for everyone in terms of just in that moment. And that can work at pretty high temperatures to keep it lower. Then you get into those bigger questions about investments and where are the changes? And this can be done by individuals, but this is also where you really need policy to scale to create opportunities for everyone. So things like having trees near your home to block that sun and to also create that cooling, to potentially having roofs. Chicago has a lot of green roofs. They're fantastic for cooling, um, also for stormwater capture, which is another challenge, and for biodiversity even. But roofs can also be white, and Chicago has actually worked pretty hard on that too. So how can we keep our buildings cooler? But then we also have to have cooling centers, places that folks can go on those days that are very, very hot if they're home doesn't afford them the opportunity to be cool there. That's a way to reach multiple people. And then over time, we have to make sure that more and more homes are efficient and that they can stay cool, but also be affordable while they stay cool. So there's a critical lens there, both from an individual, all the way up then to policy so that it's available to everyone. That is Karen Weigert. She is Reset's sustainability contributor. Karen, thank you so much. As always, I learned so much from you. It's a pleasure to join you.
The Karnofsky Building is where Armstrong worked as a child for the Karnofsky family. They were the ones to encourage him to pursue music. And while we can never predict exactly what weather events will take from us, we can try to prepare. And in this instance, New Orleans was not prepared to lose the Karnofsky Building. I wanted to get a sense of how big a loss this was by talking with another native son of New Orleans, actor Wendell Pierce. Now, you probably know Pierce from Jack Ryan or maybe his iconic Bunk Moreland role in The Wire. But if you're from New Orleans, what you truly remember is Wendell Pierce as Antoine Batiste in HBO's Treme. You'd have taken Jefferson Highway, the magazine, to get into town like I told you. It would have been cheaper. You're killing me, dog. 28 on the meat. <laughs> I'm good for it, man. Just pick me up at two right here, baby. Take me home. What I didn't expect to hear was how harrowing the experience of getting his own father, who's 96 years old, to safety during Ida was. Pierce had to watch the storm unfold from an ocean away due to his work. I am in Athens, Greece right now working shooting uh, Jack Ryan. Saw the storm coming. We saw how urgent it was to evacuate. I didn't want to take any chances. My father was 80 during Katrina, and he's 96 now. Wow. He's at home still. We rebuilt the home that we rebuilt after Katrina, and he's under uh, 24-hour care. So I coordinated two caretakers to go with him in his uh, wheelchair-accessible van, and a, a follow car. And one of the caretakers, uh, I said, bring your family, her husband and three children. And they started the trek to Houston. It took them 12 and a half hours. We had a medical emergency with one of the children on that Friday. I called ahead and said, we're going to be delayed because they have to have a medical procedure. And we'll get there Saturday morning. Got there Saturday night. That's how long it took. Yeah. When they arrived, their rooms were given away. It's now one o'clock in the morning. I asked to speak to the night manager or the night auditor, whatever his position is. I was on a speakerphone and he said uh, he refused to speak to me. I said, I coordinated this entire trip. I've paid for this entire trip. How can you give the rooms away? And they gave the rooms away. So now I'm stuck. You know, we're in Houston. There's no rooms because everybody from New Orleans has evacuated there. My father has been in his wheelchair on the road for 12 and a half hours. I know I have to really take care of his health because it's fragile. We then immediately start getting on the phones, trying to find someplace to stay. And that night clerk then said, get out. You can't stay here to my caretakers. And I said, we are trying to get rooms. You gave our rooms away. We called. He said, if you don't leave this lobby, I'm going to call security. And I was furious. So I told my caretakers, we were all getting a little upset then. I said, no, stay calm, go outside. He said he wants us to leave and we still have to find rooms. So then they went outside in the parking lot. Mm -hmm. There my father strapped into his wheelchair accessible van. The three kids are sleeping in the backseat of the other car. We're all on the telephones trying to find rooms in the middle of the night. It's now around 2 a.m. He then comes out and says, if you don't leave the parking lot, I'm going to call the police and have your vehicles towed. At this point, I'm furious. But I know the one thing I have to do is get my father somewhere so he can rest, so his health won't be endangered. I've been living all year in the Four Seasons in Budapest. I called them, literally, on the other side of the earth. 
They said, contact our hotel in Houston. We have one there. Contacted them. They gave us three rooms almost immediately. I said, leave that parking lot now. I saw a wonderful story this morning of how this World War II veteran was saved in St. John Parish and how Uh he was treated and taken out and the flag was given to him and all of that. And I thought about my father, how he was treated, another World War II veteran, as he arrived at 2 a.m. in Houston, like Mary and Joseph, there's no room in the inn forget you. And not only that, I will threaten you by calling authorities on you and now threaten you to get off my property. You know, part of what's happened here is because the levees held, because there aren't spectacular images to show of our family members and our neighbors and our friends on the roofs of their home um, awaiting rescue, folks might think that, oh, well, all you had to do was evacuate. Like, how hard is that? And I feel like your story was such an important reminder that that question of just just evacuate, just go, it's not that simple. Um, and you're in a circumstance where you have you have resources. You're Wendell Pierce. You can make yeah. that phone call. Yeah, yeah. You know, I thought about that. You know, I said, you know, uh, and people, you know, people attack me on social media saying, you know, who are you to call out some night clerk? And I'm like, it doesn't matter uh, who I am. It's how people are treated. And I was only thinking about all the people that were treated that way that didn't have the resources. How many people didn't have the, the platform that I have on social media to expose the way that's probably how difficult the evacuation could be for so many people? Twelve and a half hours on the road and to be greeted like that. But then just to have the difficulty of finding rooms and having the resources to now be in those rooms and going, oh, are we going to stay for two days or two weeks or now two months? Which, of course, in so many ways brings us back to the experience 16 years ago. Um, and, and particularly, you know, I think as I was realizing that your father was trying to get into a hotel in Houston and, and we remember how so many um, people who were fleeing uh, Katrina uh, who went to Houston also did not find a, a, a warm welcome um, from the public policy there. Can you talk to us a little, talk to us a little bit about um, the work that you've really been doing over the past 16 years? Maybe start with Pontchartrain Park. I grew up in a wonderful neighborhood of Pontchartrain Park, which uh, grew out of the civil rights movement. It was uh, something ugly, actually, separate but equal. As we um, turned something ugly into something beautiful and it became an incubator for black talent. But uh, it was a neighborhood that was very important. Um, uh, to uh, the evolution of New Orleans and the civil rights movement. And it was totally destroyed during Katrina. And I put out a call to action to my generation, the Joshua generation, who have gone out in the world and become successful men and women, to come back and reestablish the neighborhood. And that's what we did. We rebuilt the neighborhood brick by brick, block by block, house by house. We uh, constitu- reconstituted the Punch Train Park Neighborhood Association. Major League Baseball came to the community and rebuilt Barrow Stadium and made it an urban uh, youth academy for their training program. Southern University at New Orleans has returned, and we put together our own development uh, and did 40 homes. So leaving at this time, we were a little anxious to see that all the work that has been done over the 16 years would hold. And uh, so far, so good when it comes to the levees. So not everything survived, Ida. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, the destruction of this legendary jazz landmark? You know, for years we've been advocating, cultural leaders in New Orleans have been advocating for the city to um, really honor 
our iconic landmarks and iconic figures being the birthplace of jazz. Actually, jazz is a national park. Literally, the art form is a national park, just like the Grand Canyon. And most people in New Orleans don't even know that. And one of the landmarks was on the most famous block of jazz, where the creation of jazz, literally, you can stand on its mark. And that was the Karnofsky Grocery Store and Pawn Shop. Uh, Forgive the pronunciation, but the family was... Uh, caretakers and employers of a little jazz icon and prodigy by the name of Louis Armstrong. It was where he worked. Next to that shop was, is, hopefully, when I go back, it's still there, is the Eagle Saloon. Mm. And at the Eagle Saloon, the real founders of the music, the inventors of jazz, Jelly Roll Morton, Kid Ory, Buddy Bolden, they all played there. On the other side of that pawn shop and down that street, a couple of addresses is the Iroquois Theater, where when the music then started to be popularized, people really wanted to see it. It became one of the music halls at the very beginning of the onset of this great American iconic art form of jazz. And those three buildings are on the National Register of Historic Places. And I'm 58 years old in December. And they have never been renovated and never been restored and never held up to the level that they deserve. And one of them was lost in Ida. And I hope that this is a lesson that we'd learn as New Orleanians, as the leadership goes back, as cultural bears, we must demand that these places be restored, be held up they're on the National Register of Historic Places. They're the only reason they haven't been torn down is because they're protected by that designation. But yet we have procrastinated and been apathetic about these icons. So we wonder if it's be, if, if that indifference um, is going to continue on. And uh, it just broke my heart when I saw the images of it gone. And when you see that image, there was... The one sort of nod to the historic nature of that plot of land was a mural of the only photograph of Buddy Bolden in the early band. Hmm. Once in New Orleans, the saying said, right next to it, it was a beautiful mural. It was actually hopeful that they might even actually restore the buildings that it was honoring next to them. And now the images, that mural is destroyed too. It went down with the building. And it's gone, it's decayed, it's, it's crumbled. But yet, there's still the, slang, the saying next to it, once in New Orleans. The irony of that and the irony of that image should shake us to our core and realize that we have to bring back and honor the people that created this great, great American art form, jazz. No electricity, no water, no air conditioning, and a shortage of gasoline. That is what hundreds of thousands of residents of southeast Louisiana are still facing tonight, three days after Hurricane Ida leveled much of the area, and what President Biden will see for himself when he visits on Friday. More than a million are without power, and there are at least seven storm-related deaths across three states. Robbie Chavez, our NewsHour commissioner, Communities reporter who is based in New Orleans begins our coverage. I've never seen this place like this. Never. 
Justin Davis's whole world now lies in a twisted pile of debris. The neighborhood he's lived on for 35 years is in shambles. You know, I grew up Hurricane Andrew as a little boy, and this right here just was wow. This is experience, man. Never forget this. I don't, you know, I don't wish nothing like this or nobody have to go through this and like. He had planned on hunkering down in his trailer when Hurricane Ida made landfall on Sunday, but he had to take cover before his home collapsed around him. His town in Lafouche Parish had taken a direct hit from the storm. Amid sweltering summer heat, where temperatures felt like 105 degrees in parts of the state, Davis is among the hundreds of thousands who remain without electricity, air conditioning, or tap water for a third straight day. And the search for fuel to power generators is becoming more difficult by the day. In Davis's hometown of Raceland, residents lined up at a food distribution center today run by the National Guard but they only received limited supplies for a day. We need help real bad. What did you come here looking for today, and what did you get, and did you get everything? I'm satisfied. I came in, I got some water in a box, but, um, and I got a, a meal, you know, so I'm thankful for that. Robbie Lee is the director of communications for the Lafouche Parish government. He said while some residents have begun returning to their homes, he's urging as many as possible to stay away because he expects power won't return for months. One of the biggest concerns is getting residents to their homes. Um, the roads are very unsafe to travel right now. There's a large amount of power lines down. Right now we currently have no water at all, no running water, no clean water for residents. In New Orleans, a glimmer of hope emerged Wednesday as power was restored to a section of the city. Distribution sites were set up by officials and local charities where people could receive meals, water and ice and simply sit and cool off for a few minutes. Primary objectives today are getting our people what they need. We know they need food, water, cool air, and so we are moving forward with the full complement of additional resources on today. For residents in Grand Isle, Louisiana, where Ida took direct aim, the devastation has made the barrier island uninhabitable. Grand Isle Police Chief Scooter Resweber says he and many of his family members and colleagues lost their homes. In my neighborhood, I lost my home. My grandson lost his home. I have a deputy that lost his home, a sergeant that lost his home. In the bayou town of Golden Meadow, James Segrina got emotional as he surveyed the remains of what used to be his home. Dry and washes somewhere up in there. Yeah, the fact that washes right there. So. But I moved it from over here by eight foot. Segrina has been in this area his entire life and is still struggling to make sense of what's happened. His boat was destroyed as well busted the windows out and the rain poured in and it's made it sink. That is heartbreak. The remnants of Hurricane Ida are now causing what the National Weather Service has called significant and potentially life-threatening flooding for parts of the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic regions. Flash flood warnings have been issued from North Carolina all the way to Maine. While Ida has moved on from Louisiana, residents like Justin Davis have no idea when life will ever return to normal. 
but he says many here in the town of Raceland are committed to staying and rebuilding. Hey, Pop, we here. We tagged along as he checked on neighbors and his dad, who lives just down the street. We all are gonna stick together and do what we have to do to get this back going as a family. Evacuees are just eager to return. They want to get back here, survey the damage on their own homes, and they also want to come in and help their neighbors. But it's a dire situation. There is no food, no water, no power, and no answers of just when it's going to be safe to return. Judy? And, Robbie, uh, it's just so hard to imagine the amount of devastation, but we see it in your report. Tell us, what is the latest on getting people the help, the support that they need? Well, it's going to be very, very slow to come. And right now, just the basics uh, of food and water, what people need. Uh, today, we watched the National Guard hand out meals ready to eat and also three quarts of water for people to last them for a day. The other big concern is just medical care. A lot of the pharmacies here are closed. Two of the major hospitals in this area are closed. There's only one emergency room to service all these people. And so it's going to be tough for them. In fact, today, we ran across a man who was sitting in his truck. He was gasping for air. He had stage four lung cancer and he needed oxygen, but he didn't have the electricity to run the machines to give him that oxygen. So we went ahead and we called emergency services and got him the help that he needed. Oh, my goodness. Uh, thankfully, you were there uh, for that for that one man. And, and Robbie, so much discussion before the hurricane about whether the levees would hold. What is the the information that you have on that? Have they been holding? Yeah, so in, in the area that we were today in South Louisiana, in Lafouche Parish, uh, there are still some levees that there are areas of concern. In fact, in Lafouche Parish, they spent the day uh, packing those levees with sand hoping to avoid another breach. If that water breaches, it will just make matters even worse. And one other thing, Robbie, you were talking about people without water, without running water. If they don't have it and they don't expect to get it soon, how are they coping? Well, you know, again, officials have said don't come back because we don't have the infrastructure to help you out. And I talked with a few people down here who uh, were emptying their pools to flush their toilet using the water in buckets to wash their hands. I mean, that's the kind of situation that they're living in for now. And it could be as long as a month or even two. Robbie Chavez, thank you so much. Uh, such important reporting. Thank you, Judy. From Imprisoned Nation. In Arkansas, a doctor has been giving jail inmates with COVID-19 a drug not recommended by the FDA. Ivermectin is a medicine often used to treat parasites in animals and humans, and it's been subject to a fair bit of misinformation among COVID vaccine opponents. Jacqueline Froelich of member station KUAF joins us from Fayetteville. And Jacqueline, tell us about this doctor who's been prescribing this and uh, what the drug is. Yeah, um, his name is Dr. Rob Karras. He operates Karras Healthcare. It's a walk-in cash clinic in Fayetteville. He's also under contract with Washington County to care for jail detainees, operating as Karras Correctional Health and along mm. with treating jail patients infected with COVID-19. Um, he uses a complex of nutritional supplements, asthma medicine and steroids, if in respiratory distress. And he's also giving them a generic drug known as ivermectin. Karis is convinced that ivermectin is safe and effective to treat COVID-19 infection. Well, he may be convinced, and I understand he's used it on his own family members. But as far as the FDA is concerned, it is not approved for COVID-19, correct? 
Right. Ivermectins commonly used to treat parasites in both animals and humans, and I have been asked by listeners to report on ivermectin because they believe so strongly in it. Kara says FDA has approved the use of it for decades and that the World mm. Health Organization considers it to be a critical and safe medicine, but again, that's only for internal parasites. FDA has issued a really strong warning that ivermectin is not approved to prevent or treat COVID-19 and that it may cause harm. I understand the FDA is doing its own look, its own trials in case they find that this is useful for, for COVID-19. But as far as this county jail population, how long has Dr. Karras been treating these inmates with ivermectin? This is the thing. No one knew this was going on. He's been prescribing ivermectin since November, but it wasn't publicly known until last week when a county justice of the peace, Eva Madison, who received a tip about it from a county employee, brought the matter before the Washington County Quorum Court. I spoke with Madison on Saturday, who had also contacted the county sheriff, Tim Helder, um, texting him a complaint. This is what she said. Uh, I took that to the sheriff thinking, hey, the sheriff just must not know about this. I'll let him know. He'll fix it. And much to my surprise, he responded back that, well, they were only giving ivermectin to positive patients at the, the jail, and he seemed to think it was a good thing. Okay. And, and, and finally, Jacqueline, then what happens from here? Is this doctor still planning to continue prescribing this medicine? At this time, um, it's not known. He's continuing to prescribe it at his practice, but we don't know the status inside the jail. Um, the Arkansas Medical Board has opened an investigation after receiving a formal complaint by a resident. And a growing number of detainees, it's being reported, are coming forward upset that they were told by Dr. Karras that ivermectin pills were vitamins. He insists oh, wow. no inmates mm. are forced to take, to take the drug and are fully informed about the medicine. The ACLU of Arkansas also issued a statement over the weekend saying that no one, including incarcerated individuals, should be subject to medical experimentation. So we're just waiting to see what the Arkansas Medical Board has to say about all this. Okay, that's Jacqueline Froelich of KUAF reporting in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Thanks, Jacqueline. You're welcome. This question, why is this stuff happening? The New York Times article, I mean, editorial today, the Trump effect. See, this is what I'm doing with my money, buying newspapers like Dick Gregory. <laughs> the Trump effect and how it spreads. It says we are on the brink, under, under Trump, on the brink of fascism. New York Times, all the news that's fit to print, editorial 1210-2015. I say fascism is in-stage white supremacy. See, it's, I mean, just like in Nazi Germany. Fascism, system of racism, white supremacy, determined to survive. Hate crimes in the U.S. are on the rise. The FBI reports that bias-motivated attacks are at their highest level in 12 years. NPR's Carrie Johnson is here to talk with us about the new data. And Carrie, what is the FBI saying about these incidents over the past year? 
The Bureau says these crimes are up 6% year over year, and that increase is really notable, especially when it comes to hate crimes that are motivated by the race or ethnicity of the victims. The FBI says the black community bore the brunt of these incidents in 2020, but Asian American and Pacific Islanders were also targets of a lot of hate. The Attorney General Merrick Garland says there needs to be an urgent response. He says all people in this country should be able to live without fear of being attacked act or harassed because of where they're from, what they look like, whom they love, or how they worship. So what's the federal government doing to try to prevent these incidents and bring perpetrators to justice when they happen? The Justice Department has been reaching out to communities. It's trying to make information about how to contact authorities available in languages other than English. And it's encouraging states and local jurisdictions to report these crimes to the FBI. Right now, these reports are voluntary. Experts say these crimes are severely underreported. Here's just one example. The Anti-Defamation League says more than 60 large jurisdictions nationwide reported no incidents, none at all to the FBI last year. And they say that's really hard to believe. All too often, there's another issue. Survivors of these crimes don't report to authorities because they lack trust in the police or they worry about the consequences if they're undocumented people. What are civil rights groups saying about uh, this increase in hate crimes? I reached Derek Johnson, the president of the NAACP, a few hours ago. He says the Justice Department needs to bring more criminal prosecutions. He says it's about accountability. We must turn back the clock of the rise in racial hate crimes and hold people accountable and make sure social media platforms are not being leveraged to, to sow seeds of hate. Because when that happens, communities are put in danger. And in fact, our democracy is put in danger. Carrie, you also mentioned that attacks have increased against Asian Americans. What are those groups saying? Stop AAPI Hate, which advocates for Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, says since March of 2020, they've received over 9,000 reports about verbal harassment, discrimination, and even physical assaults targeting Asian Americans. Those reports are from all 50 states. And things have gotten so bad that some Asian Americans are going outside only after they put on a mask, sunglasses, and a hat, a kind of protection from people who might want to harass them. Manju Kulkarni co-founded Stop AAPI Hate. She says the Justice Department can also step up. She wants to see them file civil lawsuits over discrimination and hateful incidents in the workplace and in schools. She points out that those civil cases have a lower legal bar to succeed than criminal cases. Here's a little more from her. When we look at civil prosecution, what one of the benefits is, is that it is forward looking. You have an opportunity to change behavior. You have an opportunity for trainings uh, and it's really forward facing. All right. That is NPR's Carrie Johnson on the new hate crimes report from the FBI. Thank you very much, Carrie. You're welcome. When are we as black people? going to have the level of self-respect and courage to really come out of the slave role, slave obey your master, turn the other cheek. Make certain you turn the other cheek and you'll get your reward in heaven. And that's a slave role. We haven't maybe thought about it in those terms. Well, I can't let it build up. I can't let, I can't let what happened to me just make me think that everybody's like that. It just makes me be more cautious. 
A teenager staying positive after an Oklahoma man is caught on camera yelling racial slurs at her. She says he also threatened to kill her. She's telling only News 9's Clayton Cummins she forgives him. Clayton? Yes, she does, Kelly and Amanda. All of this happening as the suspect, 22-year-old Peyton Hurd, who's out of jail on bond from a different case in 2017. He's accused of raping a minor in that case. Wow! Hey, yo, drama, hold up, sir. Hold on, hold on. Stop the motherfucking record. All right. I want you to pondy replay, drama. Pondy replay. <laughs> <laughs> Give him one more chance, man. Run that shit the fuck back. All of this happening as the suspect, 22-year-old Peyton Hurd, who's out of jail on bond from a different case in 2017. He's accused of raping a minor in that case. Police are called to Baker's Bridge in Guthrie, a known rule hangout spot for teens. Come on. You all film? It's here where friends of 22-year-old Peyton Hurd are seen holding him back from attacking a teenager. It was cool for about 30 minutes, and all of a sudden, he starts flipping out, saying, we need to leave, I need to go especially. 18-year-old Zaria Hurst says things escalated from there. She begins recording when Hurd begins screaming racial slurs. You're going to shoot me in between my eyes. Brayden, this your friend. Here he starts yelling the N-word, he spits in my face, and then he starts throwing rocks. This guy's being like really racist. He threw a rock at me. So I need help. Zaria was hit in the temple, not seriously hurt. She says Hurd threatened to shoot her. He went to go grab the gun and then I kind of ran off because I didn't want to see the gun. I'm terrified of guns as is. A friend of Hurd police say drove off after the incident. The officers had pulled over the vehicle that, that uh, the suspect was in. Um, they, uh, they identify the suspect who's not driving. And um, uh, also there's a, a loaded firearm in the vehicle. Zaria says she forgives the suspect, but hopes a judge makes an example of him. I didn't feel like I was worthless, but it just made me feel like I was, like, I was disgusting. Now, the suspect is charged with a hate crime, gun possession and assault. He's out of jail right now on bond. I'm Clayton Cummins, Oklahoma Zone News 9. In your report, uh, you were talking about Algiers Point and the white residents specifically in Algiers Point. And you talked about the siege mentality, um, direct quote, um, that the white people had in Algiers Point and specifically um, the stockpiling of weapons and assault rifles, shotguns, handguns, uh, an Uzi. Um, I guess could you share with our listeners uh, more about exactly what this siege mentality um, entailed and, and just the amount of weapons that these people had and uh, just you know as much detail as you could share about that. Yeah, I mean, this is one thing that, that tripped me out is that, um, you know, people in this neighborhood, white folks in this neighborhood, they cut down trees and they dragged uh, downed trees and scrap lumber and other things out into the roads to block off the streets so people couldn't come through there. And then they began patrolling the streets um, in vehicles and on foot, uh, armed with all kinds of weapons. And, and one of the main people 
involved in this. Uh, one of the, the organizers of this sort of uh, militia activity told me, he said, look, um, what we did is we went around uh, to the houses of people who had left and went in their houses and uh, found their guns and amassed their guns. And we, you know, whenever we could, we let them know that we were getting their guns, but we went and got them. And then, uh, you know, after a day, we had about 40 different weapons. Um, and so, so they had this, you know, this cache of, of 40 arms, uh, shotguns, assault rifles, like you said, an Uzi. And um, as well, as I understand it, there were people coming in from out of town and, in fact, from other states coming equipped with their own arms and their own trucks to, to join the effort. And that is something I've heard repeatedly from people uh, who would know uh, for the last two years, that there was this was not even purely contained to folks that lived in this neighborhood, but that there was a broader sort of paramilitary effort there with people coming in from outside to join this little army. This is 19 News. The rain has stopped. The wind is still going there. I think we even have a random person going around. 19 News has learned the man charged with assaulting this television reporter has a violent history. Yeah, he's actually currently facing allegations of trying to harm his former employees at a Cleveland area business. Yeah, Kristen Mazur joins us live in downtown Cleveland. And Kristen, certainly as journalists, we know we're trained to expect anything really on live TV. Uh, that's certainly true. As we saw on my 4 o'clock report, you know, live TV, anything can happen, right? Including your fake eyelash just flying off uh, while you're reporting out here on a windy day. The struggle is real, Nikki. It's just uh, the guys, they don't get it. They don't get it. But yeah, as you mentioned, we're used to being out here, used to seeing us out here in these elements. That was exactly what happened for those reporters down south reporting on Ida. But in the video you're about to see, the scariest part has nothing to do with weather. A now viral video. This morning, just a couple of minutes ago. A TV reporter giving a live report on Hurricane Ida. That's the sense that you're getting that the rain has stopped. But the rain and winds weren't the harshest elements you see him face. Going around, you know, I'm going to turn this way because, you know, we deal with some people every once in a while. In the video, you see the MSNBC reporter down in Mississippi giving the latest on Ida when all of a sudden up runs a man yelling, screaming in the middle of the live report. I'm going to toss it back to you because we have a person yeah. who needs a little help right now. The man apparently upset because he said the news report wasn't accurate. Now the reporter keeping his cool, but the irate man not giving up. Even crazier, that guy isn't from Mississippi. He's from right here in Northeast Ohio. That guy right there, 54-year-old Benjamin Dagley from Worcester. Now facing several assault charges, right now on the run, with warrants issued for his arrest. And not the only trouble he's gotten himself into lately. In fact, as 19 News found out, Dagley is currently on probation after a 2017 arrest on the east side of Cleveland. The business known today as the Cleveland Plating Company. Now, according to court documents, Dagley is accused of breaking into the building, drilling holes into the tanks, trying to release very dangerous, very hazardous chemicals. A security guard ended up in the hospital. Al Dagley pled guilty to several related charges, and because of that, 
He isn't supposed to be traveling right now. Wow! Hey, yo, drama, hold up, sir. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Stop the motherfucking record. All right. I want you to pondy replay, drama. Pondy replay. <laughs> <laughs> Give him one more chance, man. Run that shit the fuck back. That guy isn't from Mississippi. He's from right here in Northeast Ohio. That guy right there, 54-year-old Benjamin Dagley from Worcester, now facing several assault charges. Right now on the run with warrants issued for his arrest. And not the only trouble he's gotten himself into lately. In fact, as 19 News found out, Dagley is currently on probation after a 2017 arrest on the east side of Cleveland, the business known today as the Cleveland Plating Company. Now, according to court documents, Dagley's accused of breaking into the building, drilling holes into the tanks, trying to release very dangerous, very hazardous chemicals. A security guard ended up in the hospital. Now, Dagley pled guilty to several related charges, and because of that, isn't supposed to be traveling right now. So then the biggest question remains is why was Dagley down in Mississippi, a thousand miles away from home and again in the middle of a major storm? Yeah, so that remaining a mystery. We're going to continue to dig into that to figure that out. Meanwhile, a hearing on his probation violation set for two weeks from today. Reporting live in downtown Cleveland, Kristen Mazur, 19 News. So, you know, these events that keep coming up, Instead of just reacting, dealing with them one at a time and being shocked each time we have another event that surfaces that we that is brought to our attention, we need to function from the position of an analysis that clarifies we are in a total system structure of racism, white supremacy, and that is why we are seeing the kinds of behaviors from individuals, be it Donald Sterling or be it um, George Zimmerman or any of the other cases that come to our attention. There is a reason that these cases exist. And I want to also talk about, in this case, they talked about mental health but also gun control. And we have to begin to understand, I say you can't understand the gun mania if you don't understand racism, white supremacy. The gun is the answer to conscious and or subconscious. The answer, the response to the quite collective feeling they can be genetically annihilated by black genetic material. And the gun is a great equalizer. I encourage everybody to get a copy of the ISIS papers and read. Welcome back. The Emmett Till Historical Marker in Money, Mississippi is missing. According to the Emmett Till Interpretive Center, the marker appears to have been hit by a car and then removed. This picture shows where the historical marker usually stands. This past Saturday was the 66th anniversary of Emmett Till's lynching. The city of Chicago. Chicago. The man, race, race, class, class, genre, and the dilemmas of black manhood. 
Tim, thanks. A Chicago police lieutenant charged with battery and misconduct. It all stems from an incident involving a suspected carjacking. These charges coming after the arrest of two other officers this week. Nate Rogers live for us tonight with the story. Nate. Current on Lieutenant Wilfredo um, Roman has 21 years with the Chicago Police Department. His attorney tonight says he is indeed an innocent man with several awards under his belt. The attorney tonight calling the charges against him completely false. Lieutenant Wilfredo Roman Jr. appeared before a Cook County judge Thursday facing aggravated battery and official misconduct charges, both felonies. Court documents say the incident happened as the 45-year-old police lieutenant was pursuing two carjacking suspects here in the 2000 block of LeClaire Avenue back in February. Once the suspect was under arrest, prosecutors say he'd complain that the handcuffs were too tight. Court documents say Roman told the teenager to shut up. He then, quote, approached from behind and shoved his flashlight in between the suspect's butt. Even more, prosecutors say when the flashlight was removed, Roman walked away, then turned and yelled, quote, that's what you get for carjacking. It happened in a split second. There's a punch to the butt. If you look at the evidence and light most favorable to the state, it is not uh, an, an intrusion, a penetration of any kind. Um, this is just uh, what is shocking is the charging of an innocent man. This all comes after police officers Victor Gubara and Jeffrey Schaefer were arrested Monday for allegedly beating a teenager following a car chase back in January. Also, as this video went viral earlier in the week of another officer seen allegedly attacking Nikita Brown at North Avenue Beach. Now, quite interesting, Corey and Dawn. According to the Chicago Tri Tribune, Roman has more than 40 civilian complaints under, during his, um, he's had more than 40 um, civilian complaints during his policing career. Those complaints include allegations of excessive force and false arrest. Roman is now released on an I-bond. He has been relieved of his police powers. He's awaiting trial while he is assigned to desk duty. Live outside Chicago Police Headquarters, Nate Rogers. Fox 32 Chicago. Black male privilege, black male privilege, context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, September 4, 2021. So I have been told black male privilege. This is our weekly compensatory call in. Dial in if you have thoughts, observations, questions counter racist suggestions the number 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate number again 720 Seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Lengthy list of things to address before we get to the callers. I will just say this broadcast context of white supremacy context. Chicago Public Schools, they made a, a settlement, a part of their 
reparations package, decades of terrorism, Chicago Police Department, John Burge, who I believe is a Vietnam veteran, just like Mark G.E.D. Furman. But a part of their reparations package was they were supposed to talk about, honestly, the white terrorism that happened in the Chicago Police Department. They're targeting black males, torturing them, all of it. And that included putting electric prods on the testicles of black males. If they've done their job, students, young scholars in Chicago should immediately be able to make connections between that report that we just heard, alleged carjackers and The procedure is if you are accused, suspected of a carjacking, insert flashlight in rectum. Immediate connections like, wow, this sounds like John Burge. They doing the same things. I thought they stopped all that. Context. Pamela Evans Harris, city of Chicago. That's Dr. Welsing, too. Anywho, lengthy list before we uh, get to. The listeners uh, invest listener supported counter racist radio. Uh, you can hit the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. Uh, when you hit the blog PayPal button is in the top right corner. Cash app is also linked there. The address for cash app cash dot app forward slash dollar sign the cows enormous gratitude to all of the investors uh, who have kept the cows on the air for 12 plus years Uh, hope the cows has been worthy uh, of your time energy investments uh, hopefully providing mostly accurate constructive information on things that we can be doing non-white people to solve this problem immediately let's see did not think we would hear Tony 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 twice in the same week on the cows but we did get to that we get to words Uh, I will say really quick this doesn't really have anything to do per se with a news clip or I guess maybe we'll have to see Uh, but I spoke with a victim off the air this week victim of white supremacy and we were just talking about all of the madness of, you know, 2021 lengthy list. And man, uh, I mean, frequently with victims, every time we do a compensatory call in, I always have anti-blackness as a hashtag and something to think about. Let's, that's one thing that we can do. Black self-respect. Dr. Welsing talked about that all the time. I'm going to reflect my commitment to attempted counter-racism every time I'm in contact with a black person. You're working not to be in conflict working if I can help that person in a constructive way if they need help or anything of that matter just looking to be constructive with other black people no conflict I was talking to this victim and man it was lots of um, blaming black people and black people are dumb and oh, some of the favorite rhetoric black people we allow racism we tolerate all of this we don't hold each other accountable it's all the classic uh, rhetoric right about how we blame basically other black people for the existence of white supremacy racism very very common shadow fighting as Mr. Fuller calls it so after we've had you know 
a robust turn of this get to the end and it's hey look Gus not all white people are bad some of them have a different space of consciousness and you know some of them can help you do some great things victims guaranteed qualified incidentally I find it amazing extraordinarily important significant highlight bold phrase print I do not make an effort to convince anyone that all white people are racist I saw years ago I think at this point I could say more than a decade ago it is impossible there are some things you have to come to a conclusion on your own I just asked the question what does it mean to be white talking racial classifications what does that mean that's all I do it is amazing the number of people that I have who spontaneously unprovoked feel the need to inform me that not all white people are racist incidentally none of these folks has ever provided me with a accurate perfected criterion for how you pick out the not racist white folks that notwithstanding I just sat there for a moment like wow I had to listen to a lot of bashing and blaming black people and then I got on the way out not all white people are racist like wow (laughs) what a doctor with A pluses for white people they have done a job uh, on victims of white supremacy all over the world black self-respect let's see next the Martinsville 7 Gusty born in the great state of Virginia coon man Governor Ralph Northam Uh, I never heard of the Martinsville 7 I say that all the time Uh, learn local history wherever you happen to be Michigan Chicago so you know all about John Burge or if you grew up in Florida Claude Neal New Orleans I mean you gotta be a PhD scholar on Katrina and a whole lot of different aspects of racism in that part of the world but I mean just learning local history you can make little field trips and go to different parts of you know the county or your city even your state lots of different ways that you can make uh, local history you're also learning about racism white supremacy and spending time constructively hopefully with some non-white people but and when I heard that I had just spoken with an investor in Virginia we were discussing Martinsville and they were telling me about people they met from Martinsville like do you know Martinsville because like of course I know Martinsville I was born in Virginia how would I not know Martinsville lame though it is um let's see next when they incidentally now when they talked in that segment victims guaranteed qualified they talked to some of the family members of these executed black males black male privilege uh, and they said they were so happy about this pardon. Incidentally, I don't celebrate uh, posthumous pardons. Uh, they do this a lot, like Jack Johnson. They've been trying to do this for Marcus Garvey. They'll get a black person who's been dead sometimes like 150 years and decide, oh, yeah, we did mistreat that nigger 150. You are pardoned. I think all that is a waste of time, but that's 
Victims guaranteed qualified for Gusty as well. Anywho, so they got some of the victims, uh, family members to come out and they said, uh, reminded me of James Brown. And I was thinking that they were going to say black and brown, <laughs> which I didn't want to laugh because, I mean, it's supposed to be kind of an important, serious occasion. But like, ooh, I think people know I have sound clipped uh, black and proud many times. <laughs> Mr. Fuller has talked about that as well. Anyway, they didn't go black and proud. They would get on the good foot, which change without improvement next man george washington carver one i really would have appreciated it if it had been uh black people with a different type of perspective more in line with white supremacy racism using accurate language and a perspective based in these are individuals classified as black and we're going to discuss this experience in that way using those terms and not uh, kind of pussyfooting the language and being kind of watering down. Well, I won't use a metaphor minimizing the terrorism of white people in all this and what happened. Dr. Yomo Mutegi, a black male. He discussed Carter G. Woodson on his second visit to the cows or actually I think more in depth the second time around. Uh, and he kind of led into that clip. He gave so much uh, detail. I didn't even give. He said a lot more, uh, but I would have so appreciated that. But I played that clip because it's not too often where I actually get to hear Dr. Uh, or George Washington Carver uh, actually speaking. So that was why I wanted to play that segment. From there, I think I said Carter G. Woodson, George Washington Carver. Uh, the reason uh, I thought it was so important, like all of the material that he created from peanuts i had no idea they're like peanut milk and all these products that they have at like whole foods and sprouts that you go in and have to pay you know your whole paycheck uh to get like an ounce of cashew butter or something like that and he was making this a hundred years ago from peanut peanut veal like are you serious they would charge like twenty dollars a pound for that in the store right now like the genius uh George Washington Carver, genius, black genius. And Dr. Welsing, she used to talk about George Washington Carver on a pretty regular basis. Uh, I thought it was so important in the segment. They played the audio so you could hear uh, Mr. Carver, the host of the segment when they came back and said his voice was almost lilting. Now, when we discussed Mr. Carver, Dr. Joe Momutegi and some of our other guests said, hey, when he was stolen by these racist uh, uh, slave catchers and all the rest of it, George Washington Carver was castrated just like Emmett Till. May explain his voice not being too heavy. Still learning, so that may not be accurate, but we discussed that. We even discussed about a year and a half ago, we discussed seeing if we could get a biography, a really good one, on uh, George Washington Carver so we could know more about him. Anyway, um, the se- I thought it was also so important in that segment. There was a lot of snickering in the lead up to he went out in the woods and the forest and just thought that, wow, this is God. Lots of people have had that experience, a spiritual connection in nature. Very common. And she starts giggling and says, he, he, he says the plants talk to him. 
Why is that funny? Particularly when you go back and look at that list of all the things that he created from peanuts and biofuel and all that he's doing this a hundred years ago. Why is that laughable to think that maybe the plants, Dr. Welsing talked about that. She said, highly melanated black male chlorophyll melanin are similar in terms of the scientific structure of these elements we're all still learning maybe they did I think they have uh, isn't that documentary the secret life of plants don't they say that the plants communicate with each other I think I saw that one I think that's the main takeaway that they communicate with each other and can kind of organize if there's a fire and all of that maybe this, hey, this George Washington Carver fellow is pretty cool. At least he's not a racist. Haven't seen him chopping anyone's testicles off. We'll chat it up with him. Share a few secrets. Let him know what he can do with that peanut. Why is that laughable? Why is that impossible? They got sci-fi with all kinds of goofiness. We got flying skateboards and all the rest of it. Why is that so goofy? George Washington Carver. Genius. Uh, let's see. The oh, and then the segment they had the white woman. She was talking about how the uh, white landowners they would uh, steal from and rob from the black sharecroppers. Uh, she said there were rapacious whites. Rapacious. She didn't say racist. She said rapacious whites. Rapacious means that you agree that you would tend to overcharge people and that sort of thing. And then she said they didn't have to be rapacious. The tendency was for people to overcharge when it would be white people because you didn't have a whole lot of black property owners at this time period. This is like early 1900s. And it wouldn't be they wouldn't have to be rapacious. It would be they wouldn't have to be racist, which again, man, how do we keep coming back to not all white people are racist? They wouldn't even have to be racist. She didn't even say racist. She said rapacious. Words are important. And if they're robbing everyone, well, then they are rapacious and racist. Words. So important. Let's see. Next. White people do not care about children. Oh, my goodness. I can't say it enough. I guess before I get to that, the segment, uh, Wendell Pierce with New Orleans, uh, one of our listeners, I believe, dialed in. We had the program on Monday was not scheduled uh, where we discussed Hurricane Ida and uh, the anti-looting patrols in New Orleans that they unleashed this week. Uh, and they had pictures of black people. <clears throat> they had pictures, <clears throat> excuse me, of black people looting the uh, beauty salon and liquor store in New Orleans shortly after uh, Hurricane Ida vacated. Got the return of the looter. We had it all. Uh, That segment, I normally don't even play. I said before, I'm not playing anymore. Melissa Harris Perry, that was Melissa Harris Perry, dropped my ego and commitment because uh, I thought it was so important what William Pierce uh, had to say about his father's uh, escape from his father at 96 World War II veteran again they have former President Trump and these folks come out and shake their finger at Colin Kaepernick you're disrespecting our veterans and get off your knee and no count negros and you're fired you are escaping a category 4 hurricane 
at 96 years old. I'm a World War II veteran. They don't even have that many of them on the planet. I bought a room. I'm not coming here to beg. I didn't come here to make a compensatory investment request. Could you hook us up with a room? Can we use the bathroom? Wendell Pierce paid for the rooms and it's get out of here. We gave you rooms already. As a matter of fact, get off our parking lot before we call the police and have you looters arrested. World War II veterans and the respect for elder, all of it. Right, right. And it was children there, right? Because we care about children. We care about the children. Can't forget that. Children who apparently maybe one of them had some sort of medical emergency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get out of here. Old looters, baby looters, in between looters. That's why I played that segment. And I even had to pause because this is the second time I have heard Wendell Pierce, the great Wendell Pierce, extraordinary actor, give a harrowing tale about his father and an extraordinary like biblical biblically apocalyptic storm in new orleans he's in uh when the levees broke talking about having his father who was 80 at the time still a world war ii veteran they go to the insurance company and oh yes the levee failure and katrina knocked your house down and we're not paying for it have a great day appreciate your service to this great united states of america and get out of here don't stay in our parking lot either that's in when the levees broke. When he says his dad, he didn't even tell it. He was so heartbroken that he just had to leave. And he told him when he got home because his father's hard of hearing, World War II veteran, uh, father's hard of hearing. And so he waits till they get home to tell him, yeah, they're not paying you anything. To what if you told me I would have killed that man? We appreciate your service, sir. Uh, and the same disrespect, the same way Carter G. Woodson, total disrespect of his brilliance. Uh, Dr. Yomo Mutegi talked about how the relationship that Doc, uh, George Washington Carter had with uh, Gerald Ford, Henry Ford, excuse me, motor tycoon, suspected race soldier. And even it might be the reason that they call the facility where they produce the cars. They call it a plant. P-L-A-N-T. Maybe lots of things racists do a really good job of hiding, but they were homies. That is documented. That's why I said we should read a really good biography or maybe two or three or five on George Washington Carver so we can be much more informed. But that was Dr. Mutegi's uh, theory. But the same way that they can uh, lie, (laughs) don't pretty it up, the same way that they can lie and conceal information about George Washington Carver, they can do the same thing. Uh, about the whole history of jazz uh, in New Orleans and the total lack of respect for those monuments and what have you. They can go beauty up the French Quarter. That was the first area they got power 16 years ago at Katrina, French Quarter. First area they got power this time around, <laughs> French Quarter, Katrina. Some things change, some things do not. Uh, let's see. Now we can go ahead and get to Peyton, Peyton Hurd, 22. The segment where this white male, 22-year-old white male, thought the young white people were going to do right he couldn't even vote when president obama was in office this is the segment where this white guy is out terrorizing uh zakaria 18 year old uh, black female teenager they're just out at the park trying to chill enjoy the last little bits of summer and he comes nigger get out of here hits her in the head with a rock threatens to go get a, a gun and shoot her in the head she said she forgave him. Now, I've heard lots of, you know, oh, my God, what is wrong with us, Yakun, and forgiving white people? That's why we're in this. Oh, 
I th- she victim of white supremacy and she's 18. I mean, that's a child. She's confused and I'm confused. Like yeah, that's victims guaranteed qualified. That's not even important. What I thought was important was, oh, wait a minute. Peyton heard, regardless of whether we forgive him or not, Peyton heard 22 year old. He is on bond for child rape. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. like you heard. I got to hear about R. Kelly every day. You bashed Bill Cosby, called him a sexual terrorist. <laughs> Peyton heard on bond for child rape, not rape, not rape, child rape. They said a minor. Somebody said, what do you see? He says, white people don't care about children. And then he comes out and is terrorizing an 18-year-old black female for no reason. Threatens to kill her. I said consistently expect more of this sort of behavior, but that report, so then we follow that one. We were here on Monday. We did the program Hurricane Ida. Had listeners, I said, hey, if you're watching television, what are you seeing? Because I haven't really been watching TV. I've been reading about things that were happening, but I didn't like sit in front of CNN or MSNBC to see live you know, TV footage of what was happening with uh, the hurricanes. Uh, and so folks said, man, they just had a black reporter on television and some white guy just assaulted him. We talked about this Monday. So I went, read some of the information on the air, said, oh, wow, we'll have to go get more information. That was all I knew about it. Before I even heard about that, I had said, I played the segment today, A.C. Thompson. That was one moment I'll stand by my work. No need to brag. You just stand by your work. Twelve plus years. A.C. Thompson was a guest on the cows 2009. That is one of the very first programs that we did when the cows got back on the air. That was May specifically 2009. In fact, I think A.C. Thompson may have been a guest on the cows before Neely Fuller Jr. was even a guest here. Super. I mean, like first 20 programs when we got back on the air uh, on the air, A.C. Thompson, you heard him. I asked him about this siege mentality and he talked about how they blocked off the streets and they went and looted. Talk about looters. They went and looted guns from the other white people's houses in the neighborhood. They had an Uzi all kinds of there would be ghost guns now and all kinds of stuff probably a rocket launcher drones uh, and so they get all this firepower and he said there were white people who didn't even live in the state who got excited for the opportunity to go and kill black males that was specific because they gave a body count it was at least 11 corpses all black males where there was a gunshot wound death under suspicious circumstances all black males white people from all over got excited at the opportunity to get their guns not to go help black people in the midst of a hurricane but to go kill black males hurricane Ida happens this week this is Shaquille Brewster now the news segment that we heard from News 19 was the racism white supremacy just within that report alone they don't even name the reporter You got video footage, you got a staff, and this is one of your colleagues, one of your brethren, sisters in the industry, right? 
Why don't we name him Shaquille Brewster? He's out in the middle of a storm, a hurricane, risking life and limb to bring us accurate information. Him down there. It down there. That's all he's worthy of. We won't give him a name. But we do incidentally name the criminal here. He does get named, but we'll get to that later. Before they do all that, the white female journalist who is doing this, her name is Rachel Vadage, V as in Vic, A D as in dog, A J, Vadage. I think that may be how you say it. She's the one who's reporting this. So they go to her and they say, Oh man, Rachel, you know the hazards of reporting outside. And she says, Oh man, you know, it's rough out here. You know, it's windy sometime. And I was out here earlier today and my fake eyelash just flew off in the wind. And I mean, woof, the struggle is real. The guys, they just don't get it. Now we want to talk about him down in Mississippi and how real the struggle can get. Are you, I was going to say, are you flipping serious? The answer, no, you are not serious. We're about to talk about a black male who you're not even going to have the decency to name. Who was assaulted by a white man who's on probation from Ohio. And you're talking about a makeup malfunction earlier in the day. And the struggle is real. Because of your lost eyelash. Are you see again? Are you serious? The answer no. Are you serious even about white supremacy racism? No. I mean the tab maybe you'd have to see the video to get the full display of seeing her like act out losing her eyelash and then we uh fast forward or transition to Shaquille Brewster and him getting assaulted down in the middle of a hurricane. And then they give the additional information. Now come on. Believe it, the struggle is real. They said that this white man, Benjamin Eugene Dagley, 54 years old. We got both ends of the spectrum. 22 with Peyton Hurd, child rapist. And then we got Benjamin, Benjamin Eugene Dagley, 54. They said he's on probation. Why is he on probation? Because he pleaded guilty to breaking into this facility in Cleveland drilling holes into chemical containers that were noxious and apparently injured a security guard why is that not an act of chemical and biological terrorism or some sort of chemical and biological attack why is it framed that way why is he even out on probation if Bill Cosby had done that Gus T Al Sharpton and then the pause like for reals like what when I asked that question before what does it mean to be white what person from a thousand miles away literally a thousand you're not even in the same time zone what person looks at this and says oh yeah the category for a hurricane the apocalyptic storm, the apocalyptic storm. I need to be there because some niggers are going to get out of hand and I need to be there to crack the whip. Literally. Who thinks that way? Apparently there are many individuals classified as white, just according to the record and the evidence 
there are many of them that's how they think not we're all in this together not let me round up toilet paper bottled water generator that I have to, no, 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 no. let me get my Uzi my fatigues it's time to go to war lots of reasons I said to vacate New Orleans uh, they said the power may be back sooner than what they initially predicted maybe two weeks a week or so power may be back for most of the residents outstanding I would not want to be in that area uh, if you could avoid it in any way shape form wow white people are so dangerous uh, and particularly when they know you're in a vulnerable position talked about Haiti remember that group they went down to steal children they didn't go down same thing they didn't go down with blankets water meals ready to eat nah, 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 nah. let's steal some children and then we got probably some Peyton herds in the group child rapist Anywho, last thing I'll get in uh, anniversary. I talked about that before. Uh, I had to pull up and and look. I said maybe maybe I'm messing up. Maybe 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 I just don't understand uh, what exactly an anniversary is. So I said let me go to the dictionary again. I thought we did this on Monday because they kept saying that this is the anniversary of Katrina. And I said that is appalling. So the dictionary definition for anniversary: the date on which an event took place in a previous year. The first example they give, so telling, the 50th anniversary of the start of World War II. William Pierce's father, how about that? Now, I don't think that's an anniversary. Why is that the example for an anniversary? Who even celebrates anniversaries for war? Do they celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Korean War? Vietnam War? Dropping of the atomic bomb? Is that an anniversary? Pearl Harbor? Is that an anniversary? Um, and and it even more stands out because after they give the example sentence they say anniversary celebrations there's nothing to celebrate with war but the fact that that's the first sentence that you put up that right there tells me a lot same question I said before what does it mean to be white what is white culture not a wedding anniversary or business being open 50 years anniversary killing slaughter death in fact if that's what it is well then may maybe Katrina this is the 16 year anniversary of Katrina maybe this is the 66 year anniversary of Emmett Till's castration and murder now incidentally that would be another one for this uh, uh, what do they call monument marker to Emmett Till's murder lynching for it to disappear at the 66 year anniversary you can't be ignorant about white supremacy racism and this monument has been attacked repeatedly Uh, they've shot at it and done all same thing that they did to Stephen Lawrence in the UK we had his mother uh, Doreen Lawrence on the program more than once and she talked about they would do the same thing they would come uh, and defecate on the monument where her son was killed her child he was 17 at the time was killed they would come and break glass and smash it all in the monument the same time I think what is this for he's been dead Stephen Lawrence he's been dead for nearly 30 years at this point Emmett Till almost dead 70 years at this point what is this for and what does that idiot say again uh he says he said well one he says because it's Labor Day weekend sobriety would be best but the other thing he says is white people do not care about children 
flagrantly on display. Number again is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. If you could take about five minutes to share your thoughts, observations, suggestions, that would be grand. Just make sure everybody gets at least one chance to speak. If you have extra thoughts, uh, should be ample time for folks to get in additional uh, observations or thoughts. Uh, If we could be direct uh, with what we want to say on this broadcast, that would be super appreciated. Words are so important. Uh, Race soldiers, they will frequently use metaphors to confound us uh, and have us not really using accurate words to describe things. Victims, myself included, many times we will use metaphors in lieu of logic. Uh, We are still learning, so sometimes we don't have all the details, info that we need uh, to articulate our views, and we'll substitute an analogy, comparison of some sort for this broadcast if we could work to be precise exact with our commentary that would be appreciated I will prompt about the metaphors uh, let's see number again 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate if you know you're in a noisy environment if you could kind of get to maybe a quieter area that would be appreciated just so we don't have to battle a lot of unnecessary background noise. Uh, let's see. First few folks who dialed in with a hand up line should be open. Can I be heard? Uh, let's see. I think that was yes, ma'am. We can hear you. I think that was confidant, maybe. Uh, it should be Missy. Oh yeah. Sorry about that. Seeing the multiple line. Yes, Missy, non Clemson grad. Great to hear you both. Hello, Gus. Uh, hello, Cal's listeners. Um, I was very interested in the um, the clip about uh, air conditioning. Um, I noticed in the past week there were a lot of articles that came out from different news organizations reporting how us trying to cool our offices, our homes, our uh, other workplaces, schools, churches, um, and other buildings um, is is causing the planet to heat up. And uh, just to give a little background information, um, how we used to cool things um, was with Freon which was ozone depleting. And then more recently, um, a lot of the air conditioning and refrigerators and freezers, they, they converted uh, to HFCs. But these hydrofluorocarbons, um, those chemicals were also bad for the planet. So it went from um, ozone depleting to a potential greenhouse gas, which you know, a lot of the, the debate around climate change and global warming is centered and always focused on carbon dioxide emissions. Um, but it's very rare for articles and for people to discuss um, other chemicals that are um, greenhouse gases, like these HFCs that we use for AC and refrigerators. 
Um, and a lot of these articles, they were talking about how air conditioning is is used to separate people by class, by race, um, by economic means. Um, and what what I've noticed is we didn't have a lot of conversations around this until the majority of the world started uh, getting AC units in hotels or in their homes, their individual homes. And so as more non-white people or brown people, black people get AC, then it's, it's our fault. It's our fault that we cool our cars, cool our workplaces, whether we're there or whether we're not. Um, and it's becoming more of a problem. And I'm not, I'm not sure what, what the answer will be. It just seems like every time we come out with a new chemical solution for cooling, cooling our homes, um, cooling ourselves down so we can work efficiently, it always seems to negatively impact the planet. Um, with that being said, it, it's very important to be cognizant about um, what temperature you do have uh, at your house or wherever you are. I, I know being in corporate America, they, they like freeze people to death. <laughs> uh, um, it, or they, they freeze them, they set the temperature in the office to a frigid, a frigid temperature. Um, and there's, there's like a meme always circulating around, like what do you set your temperature at home to? Do you set it to like 65? Do you set it to 68? Is it at 70 or is it at 78 or 80? Um, and for non-Clemson grad and I, you know, we keep it on the upper end. In addition to saving money, um, you know, in the electricity bill, you know, keeping it at 78 and 80 for a lot of people, that would be un uncomfortable for them. But temperature and feeling cool is relative. Like if I go outside and it's 95 degrees out and I come back in my house and it's only, you know, 78 degrees, it's going to feel cooler to my body. Um, but if you're always used to having, having your, your room set to like 65 and you go outside, of course, anything above like 68 is going to feel really warm to you. So I guess we can do what we can do as individuals, but you know, as far as like a global solution, I'm not sure what we can do. With that, I'll end my call. Much obliged, uh, Miss C. Um, here in Seattle, the air conditioning days are over. Now, even this summer, we had multiple heat waves. We were a part of that report. We had that 110 degree uh, day back in June. Even with all of that, it is uh, the temperature right now is headed towards the 50s. Um, I just don't think. Yeah, move to Seattle. <laughs> I guess that's one thing uh, folks could do. I was trying to think the thermostat. It's so cool here. Like you could just, you know. Whatever. The AC doesn't need to be on. So you could just said, I think when I looked at the thermostat last, it was at like 70. Um, sometimes we'll drop even below 70 because it's not very warm here uh, very much. It's been dropping in the 50s. So you might drop to about 69, which, hey, if people like the house to be at 69, right on. It will be there. Move to Seattle. Um, the AC, we might even have other programs about that coming up because I do I do notice the same trend as there are most of the planet is populated with non-white people and they talk about regions of the world with non-white people where they are improving their quality of life and it's hot so they might now be able to afford AC. It's oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Can't have all these niggers in the world with air conditioning. Like, whoa. 
Very common. That, in fact, that's something that they uh, bragged about in these parts. They had lots of articles about that. Uh, the white people here bragged about not using AC because they're all about, you know, uh, environmentally friendly and being conscious and recycle and reuse and ride bikes and public transportation and all the rest of it, um, bike lanes. Um, and so a lot of people bragged about not having AC and you didn't really need it. But I think like about 60 percent of the houses here don't have air conditioning even right now after the heat wave this summer <laughs> like that has changed like that's like a selling point for uh houses and apartments now like we have ac uh let's see other folks who dialed in uh with a hand up line should be open hello may i be heard greetings irie not in louisiana but definitely our thoughts prayers with you and friends family who are still in the uh louisiana area new orleans area hope they are safe and uh you are too thank you um yeah i i am um i so i don't know if i said this before if it was something that i um heard on an album a while back and I, I just recently found out who said it um, but it was a clip on um, a Michelle and Miguel cello uh, at the end of a song called quoting Dead Nigger Boulevard and um, she played a, a, a clip where there was a man saying when you put property rights ahead of human rights you tamper with nature because Property rights are controlled by man and human rights are controlled by nature. And that it came up again this week because of the fact that everything that's happening on the planet is because white people have asserted and assessed that they have property rights to a planet so much so that they're willing, able, and I guess, so impervious to the destruction of the planet in their minds that they'll just they'll just leave or whatever or maybe even die you know as it becomes inhospitable i don't know for sure because i'm not invited to those you know conversations that they have but based on evidence you know and I was telling some friends, like, I, I was like, I think these people been knowing about global warming and what could happen since they came out with the damn Lizzie, to be honest with you. Like, somewhere along the way, they had to see something like, oh, wait, like, wait a minute, the air ain't so breathable. And it, there, something, something. And learning more and more about Kemet and other ancient places like in Asia, like I have a, a friend that I've made a uh, past couple months that he um, spent two years in India and how advanced these people are while being simple. It's like all they've done is go around the world and catalog things and, 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 and collect things and specimens and look at people and, and, and say, okay, well, this is how we're about to fine-tune it for our comfort. And the things that we came up with, because they don't come up with nothing on their own. The things we came up with, they, 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 they ratcheted up 
in a in a different manner and they call it technology right and what ends up happening it it's it's it doesn't it doesn't do anything constructive like you said it's it's change it's modification without improvement and i just said that to somebody like i promised like about a week and a half ago they're not into improvement like we 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 had before the storm happened we had watched the movie Wally and we did a I did a critique of critical analysis with a notebook and they were just watching they didn't have the pencil paper but I took notes like I did when I was in a special program in high school and I'm like these people are destructors they don't do nothing but destroy and when I say destroy they they'll demolish nature and natural processes and replace it with something synthetic and then when that no longer works and the ecosystem or the planet tries to balance itself out, you know, there has to be, there's, there's a result from that that obviously is destructive because it was a destructive, you know, purpose for it. So the results are destructive, so, but they just get to move on and we suffer the consequences. And that's what Hurricane Ida represents to me. You know what I'm saying? Somebody, probably white, was on YouTube and I was looking up trying to see what what was happening where and they posted a comment on a video oh, they keep talking about the news uh, I'm, I'm sorry they keep talking about Katrina on the news where uh, like they ain't they haven't buried that yet I just asked them where are you from <laughs> no they ain't buried it yet because they're not it's not dead and I'm like I just the ins- the insensitivity I shouldn't even say that it's just the egotism that's involved with being white with the power of implementing technology that doesn't do anything as far as a quality of life. I'm to the point that we need to get back to being natural people. The reason we need air conditioning is because we've been the, 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 the instinct in us to be able to withstand high temperatures has been, it's been, it's, it's been diluted out of us. I hope that wasn't a metaphor, but we can adapt and it's going to have to get to a point at this point, because we see white people ain't about to give it up and they'll, they're just going to keep destroying and making things inhospitable. So the sooner probably we learn how to deal with planet Earth the way we used to as natural people so we can be more universal, the better. Because at this point, what you going to do? Look look at what's happening. What, what do you do when you're in a situation where you've relied on refrigeration, air conditioning, artificial lighting, hell, maybe even now artificial home security you get. Uh, uh, Alexa and whoever else to lock your door for you. You're a disabled person when it comes to having to go back and rely on nature in the event that that can't happen anymore. So it seems like to me, the sooner the better. I don't want to be in a situation where I'm a, I'm disabled as a human being anymore. So I'm making changes to my life, and I'm asking other non-white black people to do it too because they're also playing games with this COVID stuff. Who knows? If you don't take the shot, they might yank you off the system. I don't know. I don't want to. I'm. I just had one more thing to say. Um, I saw a documentary on George Washington Carver, and they said he was close friends with the 
white gentleman that was over the USDA. I'm suspicious now listening to the report that that gentleman probably data mined George Washington Carver for all his knowledge. Um, and if anything, he should have been in charge of the USDA, but he wasn't because he was a victim of racism. And who knows, that information has probably been implement, implemented now into the technology that we see when it comes to genetically modified organisms. You know, um, like they say, keep your enemies closer. So we just, we, we, that's all I want to say. We got to get back to, we got to get back to nature so we don't be harmed by these type of events anymore because we don't have technology at our disposal anymore. And, and, and I don't know, just figure something else out. But I'm tired of seeing my people go through this. And I'm alone. Thank you. Much obliged, Irie. Um, definitely, that is an important one to think about. I think we talked about that on Monday. Preparing, if you have an attempted family, even if it's just you, um, preparing uh, if there is some sort of major emergency. Uh, and that, man, that should be included. Like, how dependent are we on electricity? I mean, of course, everybody has a refrigerator and that sort of thing. But I mean, wow, are you. I mean, because there's lots of folks like, man, they are dependent on their smart refrigerator or their Alexa or other other gadgets uh, to do everything in the household. So how dependent are we? Would we be totally shut down if the electricity went out and thinking about that in advance? I think we had some folks last year who were talking about those generators, making sure you get one that does not emit toxic fumes and not waiting until you need it to find out. Ooh, this does emit toxic fumes and might kill us all. I think that got reported in Louisiana this week where somebody uh, they had uh, carbon monoxide poisoning uh, suspicion because they had the generator. It might have been in the house or someplace where ventilation was not adequate. Lots of things to think about and plan, but back to nature and who knows? George Washington Carver may have been studying the impact of all this pollution and what have you way back when we don't know. We'd be good to read up more on him, but I'm pretty sure like if you study and brag about what does Mr. Fuller say going to the bottom of the ocean and leaving the planet? I'm pretty sure they've been studying how they are poisoning the planet for a while. Might be why they're leaving to get off of it and what have you. But yeah, I'm, I'm sure this is not a total uh, surprise to the most powerful racists. Uh, other folks who dialed in that we missed totally. If you have a hand up, uh, line should be open. Proceed. Hello. Yes, ma'am. We can hear you. Okay. Um, I caught the tail end of the uh, report on uh, jazz, um, the unique art form of jazz that was created by uh, foundational Black Americans, and I, I'm, I'll catch it, you know, when I listen to the broadcast again um, in the archives. But I wanted to ask uh, Irie given that she's from New Orleans, if when she was growing up, uh, I know that jazz is a part of the local culture there because it, you know, began there. Um, but what I'd like to know as well is when she was in school, if that was also part taught as part of the curriculum for the native-born, I'm, I'm sorry, the, the, the native, the black 
children that are natives of New Orleans, you know, and if that's emphasized as part of their history and culture. And also, too, the other part of my question is, um, I believe Irie had, uh, had a, uh, during another broadcast mentioned that she's a performer, and I wanted to know if she also uses jazz or elements of jazz in her in her performing arts. Thank you. Um, I'm here. I'm here to answer it. Um, huh. This is interesting because it's it's not emphasized in the sense you would think. It's almost like, hey, guys, you want to play an instrument? Go ahead and join the band. We have a band if you want to. There's no um, special, like, um, I don't know what the term would be, but you know how you have a class where you learn, like, your um, your state history or your city history, and they, mm-hmm. they go through it in detail? No. Right. But the reason I had an education in jazz is because my mother was a vocalist and my aunt, and they actually mm-hmm. had a record company with some people that are well-known in New Orleans. And then I, being a little more mature for my age, mm-hmm. would listen to jazz on my own, and then I decided to start playing trumpet. And then that led to me... Oh. Uh, joining like the marching band in high school so I've been in parades and stuff and you know and then later on as an act of rebellion honestly once I got out of the military I started singing but I do incorporate jazz because I listen to jazz but the but New Orleans music in general and then my mother so today is actually her birthday so I say to her um had that you know that that was the influence for me it has to come from more so family at this point because okay. the way they treat jazz in new orleans in my opinion when it comes to children mm-hmm. it's a spec it's a spec it's something to be seen not participated in and if you're not if you don't have a family heritage which i'm sure mm-hmm. you've observed by now like the marsalises and the this and the that if it's mm-hmm. not a family heritage, you probably are not going to play an instrument. You're probably are going to just be a lay person or do just do something else that's not even creative for the most part. Even like visual art, even I would say, or performing art, it's a family thing, okay. which may have something to do with racism because maybe that came Absolutely. about because uh, someone was a slave and they made them play or I, I don't know, but... That's how it happened for me, and I could be incorrect, but that's my observation. And thank you for asking. Oh, no, you're welcome. And uh, just shortly, thank you so much for for your answer. I really appreciate it. And I just want to say, as a black person, black American, I just want to say kudos to the black people of of New Orleans who created this beautiful art form that whites have stolen from us. And I just wanted to say thank you, uh, uh, Irie, for you and the, like I said, the blacks of New Orleans for for its creation. Thank you. Thank you. And you know what I say to the ancestors because they brought all that from 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 uh, El Kebalon, from the continent. So everything we do is an imitation of that. I'll meet my line. Mm-hmm. 
Thanks, Gus. Yes, ma'am. Much obliged. Two times, uh, Ari on the line. Uh, let's see. Other folks uh, who dialed in, if you have uh, commentary to share, line should be open. Uh, can I be heard? The black African. Uh, well, I heard him first, so. Uh, yes, ma'am. We heard you as well. Just get the black African first because I'd already acknowledged him. But we'll get you next. Uh, thank you. Um, uh, I've been listening to the archives a lot. And, uh, the, uh, I think a couple weeks ago, maybe a few weeks ago, there was um, like uh, with the Haiti earthquake, um, there was some discussion about that. And um, I spent like two years, sorry, I spent like two, maybe like two, three weeks uh, in the area where the earthquake hit. Uh, this Jeremy and uh, and Lakai about maybe like four, maybe four or five years ago. And um, I don't know if anybody has been to Haiti. It's very mountainous, um, a lot more mountainous than I think most people know. And this area is in like uh, this Lakai is in like a massive valley. And so I think um, some of the folks were asking about the death count that it was lower than the previous one. Um, I think even though Port-au-Prince is a massive valley too, um, people built their homes there. It's not like a, like an agricultural area, but this uh, Lakai is an agricultural area. Um, there's like a it's like a it's like a beach, like a, a coastline beach, and then going into it, it's mostly that, that entire valley is almost all for agriculture. Um, they grow like rice and um, I can't remember the name. It's like a grass that I guess they export to like France for like um, for these like perfumes or whatever. Uh, it's like a major substance that they use. Um, so I think the reason why the, the death count is lower is because there's just less people and less buildings and homes in that area. And then when I was there, um, the person that I was there with informed me that uh, a lot of the people after the experience of the past earthquake and hurricane, they built their homes using like um, like reinforced concrete. So that's, that's likely another reason. And then people raised their homes too. So um, a lot of the people responded uh, to the circumstances, um, not the circumstances, but the, um, I guess the, 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 the weather conditions and the, the earthquakes and whatnot. Um, and then the report was talking about access to this area. It's very difficult to get there um, by road, but then by airport. So uh, we drove, not sort of by airplane or, or something yeah, like a small airplane. I was talking to the gentleman that I was there with and we passed by sort of like it seemed like a like a landing strip for for airplanes, but it, it it seemed like it had been like either abandoned or destroyed. And he informed me that people, like white people, uh, specifically, I guess they were either Swiss or from Sweden, I can't remember, that they would fly in there, and they would uh, do like terrorism, like sexual terrorism with like some of the Haitian people there, like with like bestiality. Um, and so once, like, I guess, like, 
more Haitians found out they they, they kicked these people out and they destroyed the land. So that's one of the reasons why, I guess, things uh, can't come in, like uh, help can't come in through that, uh, through like the air. Um, And then just a quick, what is this? um, Someone, someone like on, I think the person like follows or listens to this program, they put up like an image Sort of like almost like what is this the so delectable Negro, um, where like different black people with different skin tones they had different edible um, names under there. So I I responded to the person because um, I had an experience with that in kindergarten with my offspring who was well he wasn't even he was in like pre K at that time and where. He informed me, he just, he was just like, yeah, hey, Dad, I'm Caramel or something like that. So I was like, what? Like, I, I kind of lost it, you know. I was like, what are you talking about? So it took, I had to explain it to him, like, talk to him and everything. And um, and so I wrote the, the school that, um, the daycare that he went to. I, was, I asked him why was he being described as an edible item um, where the what were the other types of kids? Like, I, I think I even asked, like, what are the, what were the white and Asian kids described as, as edible items? And, um, what else did I, I asked them if this was on the curriculum. So I didn't get an answer through, cause I had emailed them. And so like, when I went there, the te- like everybody, it was like white women there. They were just looking at me like, like they were just angry. And so I, I speak with the, with his teacher I think I think she'd be classified as so-called Latino or Hispanic, and um, her response was that it wasn't part of the curriculum; that it was just part of something that they were doing there. And I remember, like, she 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 sort of pointed like to sort of I guess I don't know to make it is it palatable? I, I don't know if that's a metaphor to make it seem or well, I guess. Collectible Negro, but to make it seem um, okay, she pointed at a, I guess, was a dark black female, or um, and said we describe her as chocolate. So I was just like, oh man, I got. I was like, wow, like this is, um, and so I started talking with my mother. Uh, she's an educator. Um, she said, I guess this is something that they do. So this is maybe this is code for parents that they should talk to their kids prior to going to like. I guess it would be pre-K, maybe like three, four years old to start to talk about such things because I guess when they do their colors, this is part of the colors. Um, so, yeah, um, talk to them prior to, um, I guess that's something that parents should add to their code. Um, thank you. The Black African. Man, Neely Fuller Jr., I think, is the first person that I heard who recommended that on uh, saying, let's, you know, not refer to other black people as chocolate this. And, you know, we're talking about people, lots of ways where black people end up being man, not woman, not child, not lots of different ways that that's manifested and all that. This was even before we had read Delectable Negro, which, Wow. But I I even thought when he used the word to make it more palatable, like that's the appropriate word for this context. What are you talking about? 
that's just a little caramel right here. This is a little chocolate over here. Brownie is one that they'll use. I've heard that like we had some um, white people who abducted, adopted a black uh, child and Brownie ended up being their nickname like all of it. And exact brilliant questions like do we have these sort of edible names for the white children or the Asian children so-called? And I mean, woo, if they do, let me get my pen out and write. Are we calling? Look at little vanilla. Look at little. I don't even know. I mean, <laughs> I'm waiting on it. What's it going to be for the Asian children? Like, come on. Look at our little lemon pop. Hmm. Excellent. Qu- is this part of the curriculum? <laughs> and if so, why? <laughs> like, how is this going to help us produce intelligent young scholars calling them? Karma. We had a black female. She was a journalist. She, her, the name of her blog was Caramels on Maple Street. This was a cowbell. She was in some sort of tragic arrangement. Um, yeah, that's 12 years. Been here a long time. Uh, confidant, I think it was. Much obliged for your patience, ma'am. Uh, if you have commentary to share, proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. We can hear you. Hi, this is uh, Z's mom. Um, I was. Oh, I wanted to comment first on what Irie was saying about how they must have known about climate change for a long time now. I actually um, recently saw an article from around the 1910s, and they were talking about. I think it might have been in New York Times or. Uh, a paper that's still around today and they were talking about coal and how coal produces greenhouse gases and that we probably shouldn't be using coal because it will affect the climate in a negative way, cause heating of the climate. So I think it's really interesting because they've all obviously had this information for what seems like almost a century now. Um, I also thought it was interesting in that story the way that they seem to just be accepting climate change and it's basically about tailoring your life to it instead of, I noticed that the news language now is just like, well, it's here, so there's nothing we're, we're going to do about it and we're not going to talk about doing anything about it. Um, I think that was really interesting. And I mean, for me personally, I think that there's obviously like climate change affects non-white people to a greater extent. And I know for me, like I was displaced from Los Angeles Um, because of gentrification and the housing market. And where I live now, it's uh, regularly 100 degrees um, on basically for like six months out of the year sometimes. And um, we had a period of time where our AC wasn't even working for about two weeks. And it was getting around 90 degrees inside our home. Um, And also, a lot of the places where... I mean, this, this, the place that we had to move to, there's a lot of non-white people who have been displaced from Los Angeles, and all of the air pollution sits here because we're in a valley. So I think, uh, yeah, and unfortunately really affects non-white people to a greater extent. Um, I also thought the story about Wendell um, Pierce finding, or trying to find a room in Houston, although it was really commendable, the way he kept his cool, um, because, or I guess was kept calm in that situation. I, he was really focused on just being solution-oriented, and I think he said at certain instances that 
he was really angry, but he just didn't focus on yelling at the person. I thought it was really interesting how people were getting upset with him for not for naming the hotel and the worker, especially because a lot a lot of times non-white people are just alleged to have done a crime and their names and their family names will be on the news for everyone to know, even if they didn't actually commit the crime. Um, I thought about New Orleans not having electricity. I, I think that every building should have solar panels. Like, it should be included in, the, in a home the way that roofs are. It should just be something that everyone has um, because it would at least help when your electricity is cut off to have that extra source of energy. Um, I also thought the story about ivermectin was interesting because they said that people shouldn't use ivermectin because it is not FDA approved. But I remember that the COVID vaccine was just FDA approved. So it's kind of confusing that they changed the litmus test. I mean, I don't know much about ivermectin, but I just thought it was confusing how they changed the litmus test for what, like, what is usable and what isn't. And then the last thing I wanted to bring up was I read a news story today about an 18-year-old. I think she's a non-white female. She was killed during a boxing match. Um, she was, I guess, she was, they had to induce her into in coma. And it just um, reminded me of, I think uh, Gus talks a lot about uh, CTE and football and the, how dangerous those sports are. I thought it was just really incorrect to have um, young children playing these type of sports that could ultimately lead to their death. Um, that's all I have to say for now. I'll mute my line. Z's mom. My bad. Z's mom. Much obliged. Yikes. 100 degree heat, no air conditioning. Yikes. We had that for like, hmm, I think like three, four days here. Three days. We had that for three days here the worst it was unbearable um the death that she's referencing uh i'm just reading the first report that i pulled up from today the boxing world has been left shocked after 18 year old Jeanette zacarias zapata died after she was rushed to the icu for injuries sustained in her recent fight viewers were left stunned in montreal last week after marie pierre Houle delivered a number of powerful punches to zapata in the corner of the ring and after a solid uppercut left the Mexican stunned. Now they're saying Mexican. This looks like she could be a black female. Mexican is not a racial classification. Latino, Latinx, none of that is a racial classification. This looks like it could be a black female. Um, a final right hook called, caused Zapata's mouth guard to fly out and left her unable to return to her corner after the bell rang. Uh, and then it just goes on. She collapsed and all the rest of it. Uh, definitely a non-white person. An 18-year-old beaten to death in the ring. Now, this happens. Uh, this is not like an anomaly. This is not like, oh, my gosh, do you mean someone? This happens on a, I'm not going to say a regular basis, but I mean, they know uh, this goes with the territory, as they say. I think that's the metaphor. This is a part of the sport, as they call it, of boxing. From time to time, someone will be beaten to death in the ring and we'll say, oh, this is regrettable and we'll have an investigation and blah, 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 blah. But, you know, hey, Deontay Wilder and uh, Tyson Fury 3. Go on to check that one out. I mean, instead, I said that when Dr. Uh, 
Uh, we did the bittersweet science. Dr. Gerald Horn earlier this spring, I said they will look back when we get to a system of justice. They will look back at both football and boxing. Barbarians. Can you believe that <laughs> an 18 year old beaten to death in the ring for entertainment? That's that's the type of culture where you end up with Hurricane Katrina's anniversary castration of Emmett Till's and or the 66 year anniversary of Emmett Till's castration. This is the type of culture. Yes. Entertainment where we watch someone be beaten to death. System of white supremacy traveling again for that like I gotta go cross the border into Canada to <laughs> disgraceful uh, the number again is 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would okay. like to participate uh, other folks who dialed in if we have missed you totally you have commentary to share proceed uh, let's see that one uh, confidant yes Mr. Um, I agree with you oh, that, that, that boxing story is tragic um, uh, wow um, I agree with you that white people do not care about children my court um, the high school district in the area that I'm allowed to live in has a new student dress code uh, you might ask, why is this? Well, the rationale for this change is the district trustee's daughter was sent home from school in the second grade for wearing shorts that were deemed too short. The trustee's daughter is now 14 years of age. So for approximately seven years, the trustee has been determined to have the school district dress code change to make it more, wait for it, quote, inclusive. I think the school's intent may have been to be helpful in maintaining standards, and if a female child, or adult for that matter, is dressed very provocatively in public, it can be a distraction for males, truth be told. Which is one reason I support school uniforms. I believe children learn better in an academic setting where the emphasis is on education and not clothing. And if I had my brothers, more children, especially black children, would be homeschooled. Further, in my opinion, this female who is now 14 years of age, could be the first one of the females between sexual harassment, which, by the way, I am against. You know, bad things have been documented to have happened to children, molestation, etc., as well as adults. So what I'm saying is, why not guard against as best we can as parents by having especially female children dress modestly. They can still have some creativity and individualism, I think. 
Now, what does the new changes in the dress code mean when they say it was rewritten to be, quote, more inclusive? Well, the new policy states, quote, students should be allowed to wear clothing that makes them, quote, comfortable. But where are the adults? I mean, the policy also states not only should they wear what makes them, quote, comfortable, the policy also says, quote, to not reinforce stereotypes, nor facilitate marginalizing or discrimination, oppression of any group based on, wait for it, race, sex, gender identity, gender expression, sexual orientation, ethnicity, religion, cultural observance, social economic status, or body type or size. I don't even know what they're talking about. All the school officials did was ask the student to change his content a tad bit longer. But in one fell swoop, the standards have been greatly diminished in the public school system. Not only is this trustee a mother, she also teaches seventh and eighth grade. And here's the clincher. The teacher trustee said, quote, as a teacher, I have often thought the dress code unfairly targets girls, and some cases, people of color, I don't know how we got into this, uh, with regard to hairstyles and whatnot, quote, she said, unquote. The new dress code provisions also protect the rights of, quote, transgender, transgender students to wear what they want, close quote. So again, in one fell swoop, seven years in the making, public education in this district has changed, and not for the better, in my opinion. And by the way, if this had been a black female child with shorts on, she may have been led away in handcuffs and suspended indefinitely. Thank you for allowing me to speak. Mm. Much obliged. I believe that's uh, Phoenix in the uh, U.S. Virgin Islands. Switched the lineup on me, but we got it. Uh, much obliged for sharing. We've had so many different people. We just heard from uh, Z in California. Bay Area mom also in California. We've had so many different parents talking about the sexual acting out and how sexualized the children are uh, and just talking about the music and everything is just hyper sexualized and, and seeing the children respond to that uh, Dr. Welt when you play around with sex the joke is on the offspring uh, and to me that is super logical to within that context where you got Jerry Sandusky you got matter of fact let's, let's go current uh, Peyton Heard 22 child rapist you got these type of individuals and lots of them running around Woody Allen uh hey my I said that for years like let's be a bit on the prudish side everybody you know school environment work environment I said that for years like we're not going out trying to look cute for everybody like oof let's try as best we can like the and reason being for that again 
Lots of sexual abuse is encouraged. Sexual molestation encouraged, especially, hey, don't care about children, especially if they're black. Go all the way to Haiti not to take them a can of tuna fish, rape and steal some children. Heard that two times. The black African talked about that as well. Makes sense to me. Uh, Incidentally, I mentioned Woody Allen. We had the discussion about jazz in New Orleans. Woody Allen in his autobiography, he does all that talking about Louis Armstrong and Thelonious Monk. And he loves the primitive sounds of the black male New Orleans jazz men. You think Woody Allen dipped into some of his, you know, fortunes immense. Let me send a few dollars down to New Orleans. Let me let me send a few dollars to help, you know, preserve some of the artifacts and things. These black jazz musicians have meant so much to me in my life and enriched my experience. Least I can do. Here's a few nickels. Maybe he did. Maybe they just didn't make a big to do about it. I'm curious. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up. uh, If you have commentary to share, proceed. Greetings, everyone. Retired uh, firefighter in Florida. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, I would just like to uh, give a uh, suggestions to everyone on the line and uh, also uh, to suggest that you uh, share with uh, others. Uh, I heard a report not too long ago that uh, some governmental officials, whether it was state or federal, uh, apologizing for not being prepared to the uh, different uh, issues that are induced by the uh, new environment that we find ourselves in, uh, which is code for me uh, of a very uh, sophisticated way to not have to assist targeted people. Uh, Similar to uh, places like in uh, Haiti or anywhere where uh, non-white people uh, do not have the means to uh, solidify their place of residence, uh, adequate uh, and healthy food sources uh, where they have to go uh, far places with uh, inadequate transportation uh, in areas where it is adequate, they may have some uh, uncomforts and and a level of suffering, but it would be disaster in those places like Haiti or a lot of environments where non-white people especially non-white people who are classified as black stay. Uh, so my suggestion is that uh, 
just make it a, a part of your deal. Not none of them have to necessarily be daily, but uh, make it a monthly, uh, monthly practice to keep up uh, a uh, food source that can last you for two weeks or more water source that you save, put away uh, of drinkable water uh, to be prepared for these things. We're, we're going to, we're going to have to understand that uh, under a global system of racist white supremacy, non-white people are always in a warlike condition. So therefore, it would be advisable to be war ready. And uh, also, uh, it makes relevant to what Mr. Fuller had been stating for, I've heard, I've been hearing him state this for at least 20 years. Uh, the whole idea of uh, stop collecting things in your place of residence uh, that you have to be accountable for if some sort of uh, disaster take place. You know, and th these things that I'm talking about can take place in a short period of time where you wouldn't have time to uh, uh, put in the boxes and, and load up into a truck, you know, certain things. Just kind of like restrict your environment where you reside. Uh, I know uh, the whole idea about... Uh, some level of stylishness. <laughs> uh, maybe you could have two things at the at the same time, but I would I would advise that uh, you first think about uh, the means to be able to move at an adequate at an adequate rate uh, in times of a disaster, whether it's quote unquote natural. And I'm saying, quote unquote, natural and on purpose or something that is created by another group of people. Be able to gather whatever needs to be gathered and remove yourself and others at a recordably uh, fast period of time. And you know you may you may maybe once every two months practice it, have a you know have a have a practice. Uh, elderly, if it's if it's elderly, uh, someone who needs special assistance to be able to know uh, public transportation routes that are to be used for these type of occasions, uh, so you won't have to depend on. Uh, it coming from a television that may be out. Uh, of course, collect keep batteries around. Don't don't wait until it's quote unquote hurricane season or tornado season or whatever. Or because now uh, the uh, climate situation is is to a point to whereas uh, the season could be uh, three hundred twenty five days out of the year at some point at some point in time in any one of those days out of the year as opposed to a quote-unquote season. Uh, you know, so just think about those things.
Think about those things. And that's all I have to say. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. Great tips. Would expect nothing less, uh, retired firefighter. Um, especially uh, just so that you can stay informed uh, in terms of, you know, what's the news or radio stations, that sort of thing. They even have little um, radios that have a crank on a hand crank on them. No batteries required. uh, No, you know, plug in nothing. You can just crank and boom, have a radio. You can get all the information that you need and would last as long as you need it. Super cheap, you know, low tech uh, might be something good just to store in your, you know, emergency bag just in case like something that could come in handy in a situation like New Orleans where you don't have electricity and it's looking like power might be kind of difficult at least you can have a radio to kind of get updates about what's happening that sort of thing but deaf water the essentials uh, should be mandatory to have this sort of planning if you are an attempted parent uh, we have about five minutes left before we conclude uh, 720-716-7300 the code five six four nine four three pound uh star six one if you have comments observations uh you need to make before we conclude uh did we miss anybody anybody comments to share before we wrap up i just want to uh thank the firefighter for what he said because that's something i've had in mind since katrina preparedness but it's been taken for granted. So hopefully people have heard you loud and clear. Indeed. Yes. You know, because white people are always prepared. They're always prepared. I mean, we take it for granted. We, we see that, we see that pickup truck behind us where the wheels are so big that you can literally crawl underneath the, the vehicle. Uh, uh, as a white guy, or a white female driving the thing, you know, and, uh, you know, during a, a case of a flood, uh, it'd be, have to be some very high waters to bother them, you know, in that situation. Uh, and they make, they make a hobby out of it. Just frequent to uh, gun shops and army surplus shops. And white people are buying things off the shelf and it's not even no quote-unquote season. That's something that they do, they, that they enjoy doing. Look at YouTube and any weapon that exists uh, that is everything except maybe a nuclear bomb. <laughs> they, they are shooting it or blowing it up or something, you know, that sort of thing. So they, that's, they, that's what they do. And we're going to have to uh, basically prepare ourselves uh, because ultimately we are the target in a lot of cases. We are the target. Spoken like Charles S. Dutton in Menace to Society. Indeed. Um, Any other folks that we missed totally? Got everybody. Nothing. No additional comments. Folks need to make sure they get in for the week. Grant will 
assume folks are satisfied the metaphor we heard I think it was Irie who said they were talking about Katrina said oh man y'all haven't buried that yet I'm not actually sure that they did recover all the bodies from 2005 that was something that they talked about not even being able to get an accurate count on exactly how many people did die in this event much less recouping all of the bodies so no we have not buried that yet Anywho, uh, check the Black Talk Radio Network, Facebook, social media outlets for upcoming programs. Get some white people on the program as we wrap up uh, summer, head off into autumn. I, we missed a segment. It was supposed to be about uh, flying and all of the dangers. I can only reiterate, I would not be flying this year. It would be all about if you can drive. Uh, train, no flying. It is way too dangerous. Uh, the reports just keep coming out about white people being drunk and disorderly, violent uh, when they're out and about on these planes. So I just don't think it's worth the risk. In addition to, you know, you still got the COVID situation. And then if you travel and something happens, you end up testing positive and they don't allow you to fly. And they've canceled a lot of flights and weather situations. And it's just been doesn't really seem like the best time to be planning globe trotting trips and vacations and such. Try to take day trips, things that you can just drive, stay local, don't have to go too far, don't have to worry about some sort of catastrophe upending your vacation. Just saying. And for the end of the year, definitely no Halloween, Christmas, Thanksgiving, none of that. Uh, if you can't drive and meet up to do that, if you got to, let them know in advance. That is not worth it to risk flying this year for all of that. Way too dangerous. People normally act up during that time of year anyway. Traveling and all that because there's so many people flying and all the rest of it. Can't even imagine this year. Anywho, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. I know it's so-called holiday weekend. They will have enforcement officers out those sobriety checkpoints if you're in the U.S., I would not be out. Got to hit the bar to wrap up the summer and all the rest of it. No. Hunker down. Stay inside. Plus, they got all those wild like COVID restrictions. I know they do here. Like they had, hey, virus is spreading. You can't be out in big crowds and all that. Got to wear masks even outside. So I would hunker down. Not the time to do Labor Day celebrations either. Uh, If you are going out, be very alert. Uh, Say the names again. 22-year-old Peyton Hurd, child rapist Benjamin Eugene Dagley. Lots of dangerous whites out and about. You should be thinking these folks could be armed. If someone is being hostile and loud in public, exit. This is not a time for verbal confrontations. You don't know if the person's armed. You don't know if they have an armed entourage. If you didn't leave your residence prepared to kill and or die, exit if you're driving buckled up being alert as possible know what's going on around you all of that said creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are 
in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. No name calling, no gossiping, highest levels of black self-respect each and every time we are in contact with another black person. Super important. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Goodbye. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Uh, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Uh-huh.